0: Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, reality check
1: radio. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so receive exclusive benefits only for members including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions and also our all-new daily curated news summary rcr Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day to find out more visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference
2: Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be here and to have you with me. Uh, You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've got a great show coming up. We are talking to Carolyn Eichler, and she's, well, she calls herself a prepper. And it's just thinking about what you'd do if it all turned to custard, how you'd keep warm, dry, and eat. Very interesting this will be. I'm interested in that. Also, we've got our Professor Guru along, Wally Richards, talking gardening. And, of course, Tane Webster, because it's Thursday. Politics Explained. He'll have some questions for me, which I hope I can answer. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057. Email me inbox at You're on Radley Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I came across a marvellous Facebook. I know, I know. What am I doing on Facebook? Well... You know, sometimes I go on Facebook and have a look. But I found a a very interesting Facebook page called Pepper Kiwi. Oh my goodness, great videos, well presented. Um, Very professional looking, actually. And great little short clips about how to do things, like have you ever wanted to make sea salt? No, there's a sort of 60-second clip that'll show you how to make sea salt here in New Zealand. Want to gather your own pepper? No, there's a video on how to gather your own pepper. And by the way, those video clips have um, had like nearly half a million views. So it's extraordinary. And behind it, behind Prepper Kiwi, is a lady called Carolyn Eichler and her friend Rose, whose name for now I forget, but we've just got Carolyn, but she'll introduce Rose to us. Caroline, good morning.
3: Um, good morning, Rodney. Nice to be here.
2: Well, it's very lovely to have you. And in a funny way, when I I saw your, when I came across your Facebook, I thought, oh, this is about, you know, preparing for Armageddon. And in a way it is. But what I found so interesting about it was it was all about, the ones I saw at least, were all about using local flora to feed yourself. Is that right?
3: (laughs) That's right. At the start, uh, Rose Clark is her name, so she's a, a friend, landscaping friend of mine. At the start, we weren't sure how the page or the idea would evolve because we have quite broad skills in a lot of areas, but it just seems to be that people want to know about survival in terms of what's free, what's available in New Zealand and what they can use. So that's why the salt and pepper ones are our biggest videos.
2: Tell me, um, you say landscaper. Um, What does being a landscaper mean?
3: So probably landscape gardener is a better term. So that's generally soft landscaping rather than hard landscaping, which is sort of your machinery side of it. So we've both got businesses. Mine is based on Waiheke and Roses is based in the city, so what you do is you go out and you do a quote either to uh, design and build a landscape design for somebody, or most of it is not as exciting as that, most of it is maintenance, that's the bread and butter of the industry. So you might be going out and shaping someone's buxus, or you might be pruning their roses or their fruit trees, so it's just general maintenance and garden care.
2: And how long have you done that for?
3: Um, I think I've done that probably about 15 years.
2: And is all your work on Waiheke?
3: Uh, it has been, yes. In the past, i worked in the city as well. But, um, yeah, it's not, it's not easy commuting.
2: <laughs> and if you need a bit of hard landscaping done, like a digger or something, do you just contract that to someone?
3: That's right. That's right. I mean, it's sort of like any trade. You get to know people and you use the same people again and again.
2: I don't know if this is a rude question, but I'll try. And if you say, mind your own business, you can tell <laughs> me to mind my own business and I won't be offended. But, like, how do you quote for a job and like you charge? by the hour, and guess how many hours it is, and then what would you charge per hour? And do you charge travel time? How does all that work when you're doing a, pricing a job?
3: It depends on what the job is. If it's just a main, and you've got to have that eye for it, so you need to walk into a property and be able to eyeball what is required. So that comes with experience, and um, from there, Well, for us, me personally, um, being on a place like Waiheke, there's amazing gardens, there's large lifestyle blocks, etc. So if it's just that sort of job, there'd be a minimum that we would come out for, and that would be half a day. You can almost think of it like uh, similar to what cleaners would do. They look at a job, and they quote it in a similar way probably. They look at how long it would take to maintain that job and have a minimum amount of time. And for us, it would be half a day. Don't come mm. out for anything less than that. Um, I personally don't take any jobs that are difficult. <laughs> like, say somebody's got uh, a lot of gorse that needs cleaning out, I would, I, I potentially would subcontract that out to somebody, but those days are over for me. Uh, Rose might be more keen on that being a bit younger. But um, when you've built up a an established business, and you've got goodwill. You can kind of pick and choose the jobs. Mm. Does that exp- explain it a bit? What the rate of for does. a garden? A rate for a gardener per hour. A good gardener is anywhere between probably fifty-five and I don't know eighty dollars an hour. If they're consulting, say they're designing, it's going to be over a hundred dollars an hour.
2: Gosh, you know, I'm so out of touch because. I mean, I get that quoted to me, and I just find, like, for things, not for gardening, I do that. But, you know, you get an electrician or something, and I, oh, I, I almost fall over when yeah. people quote the price. But then I work it all out. And, of course, there's been inflation, uh, things cost a lot, and it's just moved on from 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm still living 20 years ago, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. So, well, good on you. And is – how much of your business is regular? Because there'd be people who just want regular garden maintenance, wouldn't there?
3: Well, that is the bread and butter of the industry. If you don't have that regular work, you can't budget, you can't predict where you're going to be. Yeah. And um, a lot of people do make that mistake in that industry of going for the design, going for um, the one offs they aren't regular. Yeah, big cleanups. I mean, that's somebody else's job. That's not a job for me. But the reason that I've always done maintenance is because in 2008, 2009, um, uh, when you're when you're a gardener, you're often working for very wealthy people who have um, – I always say I could never afford myself as a gardener. Nice. <laughs> you're working for very wealthy people and often business people and in 2008, 2009, I noticed that they sort of shut purse on things like, you know, a $50,000 landscape design and build, but they never shut the door on the maintenance. And that was a wake-up call to me, to be very careful to, um, one, spread, never never have all your eggs in one basket, but always keep that maintenance. Um, and also to make sure that you did... Um, really respect those customers you had and look after them. you
2: um, would be very t- nice <laughs> to your customers in the exactly. good times because um, yes. you're going to need them in the hard times.
3: Yes, I've always been, and they will support you when you look after people like that. Yeah. Um, one trap that people fall into is that usually around Christmas time, you'll get people literally chasing your vehicle because it's sign written, wanting you to do a job before Christmas. Um, and I always have a rule, no new clients in December because that's when my existing clients usually need extra jobs done.
2: Um, How did you get into landscaping?
3: So what happened was I've always been around gardens my whole life. My parents and grandparents are gardeners, so I grew up with that. But I didn't go into that. In fact, I've got an education that's nothing to do with gardening. But I went into retail. I worked in pharmacy for quite a few years, so I had quite a lot of retail experience. And then there was sort of a change in my life where I needed another job. And what I did was there was a job going in a garden centre so I applied based on my retail experience and uh, got that job. When I went in there, it turned out I discovered that, so I was probably in my 30s then, I discovered that everyone didn't have the same knowledge that I had in terms of gardening, which was quite surprising to me because I'd grown up around it. You just you assumed just took it that for
2: granted, yeah.
3: Yeah, I took it for granted that, People knew how to plant a potato, for example, or they'd planted carrots before. So that was a real eye-opener to me. So I walked in there just on that retail sort of sales experience, and I I ended up managing that place. So that was a placemakers garden centre. I managed that for a couple of years. And from there, people came in and were asking me to come out and do jobs. So (laughs) one thing led to another. So people wanted me to personally come out and plant for them or select trees and plant for them. And the money was just so much better.
2: Mm. So, and, so
3: that and you started had it. That's right. You're your own boss. But are you not tied down to that? But your money, money is a big factor in that.
2: And presumably on Waiheke, there are a lot of like holiday homes that people that have holiday homes just want. Maintain the garden maintained for when they go there for the weekend or the holiday break.
3: That's right. I've always sort of, in the. I don't advertise now, I don't need to, but in the past when I did advertise, I always sort of, my lead-up line was, you know, don't spend your time on Waiheke, mowing the lawns and looking after the garden. No. Let us do that.
2: Mm. Yeah, because whenever I think about having a batch, I think I'm flat stick looking after the house i got.
0: That's the right. Idea you're just, of adding yeah.
2: another house is just like more work, double the work. And that's right. Um, I always think I'd rather go half as much and have an Airbnb or something and have someone else run around and mow the lawns.
3: That's right.
4: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I when I go to holiday places, um it always amuses me that you turn up there and everyone's out mowing the lawns, doing the gutters, fixing things up, and you're thinking some holiday.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see it all the time. Mm. Those are, yeah, those, I mean, if you can afford it, not everyone can afford to have a gardener in and, and, you know, somebody doing the gutters and their swimming pool. And, uh,
2: mm. I mean,
3: it, it's actually a lot of money when you add it up on some of these properties. Mm.
2: But there's a lot of people that have it, right?
3: Uh, in in certain areas, certainly on Waiheke Island, um, parts of Auckland where Rose would be working. So she's working in places like Marumara, uh you know, it's a higher income bracket, the, the area yes. that we specifically work anyway. Uh, I always think about the places in New Zealand that would, when I drive around, you know, who could, who's got good gardens here? Who who could sort of afford the the type of gardening that I like to do? And uh, those places are quite limited, really.
2: When I was a kid growing up in the 60s, I'm, I might be stepping out here, but I grew up in a little town called Rangura in North well, Canterbury, and there was about five thousand people, I think. Then, um, yeah. no one had ever heard of a gardener. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just wasn't a thing. Oh. I imagine, may, maybe in Christchurch and Fendleton, people had gardeners, but it just did. And I mean, now it's it's quite a common. I at the weekend, I met an electrician who says he can make more money uh, as an electrician but he works for another person landscaping like you. Wow, and he said, I just so love it.
4: Yeah. yeah he said, I, I, think- I
2: just so love being around nature and working in nature and um, compared to, he says, I regard electrical workers just work, but landscaping, he said, I love it.
3: Yeah, that's a very common to hear that, and it's 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 such an, Opposition to when I worked in pharmacy, your type of customer is different in both of them. Um, in gardening, clients are they come out and they just say things like, "I wish I could spend the day here just working and chatting with you." Like everyone lo- loves the idea of being out in the garden.
2: Mm. In pharmacy, I'm sort of stepping outside preparation, but um. We take a lot of pills, don't we?
3: We do, yeah. I mean, this is this ties into my background and what we do on Prepa Kiwi because I talk about a lot of plants that we can grow and harvest in a traditional medicinal way because I've got experience in a pharmacy and in the one I was in, it had a very large natural health range, probably larger than the majority of pharmacies. So I was quite versed in the products that we were selling, for example, echinacea or um, clover. But I didn't, at that stage, hadn't really investigated the plants and learnt about whether they grew in New Zealand and how they were prepared. But I always sort of go back to that past and I think about the people that came in that were using them. I know about the companies that Um, Making them and how their reps work. Um, So, yeah, I do have an insight onto both sides of that as well. So, the pharmaceutical industry, I'm familiar with their reps and the connection to the doctor, et cetera. So, it's, it's quite a change for me to be outside of that system, foraging in the bush, looking for plants and filming it on Facebook.
2: So, tell me how, so tell me now about Kiwi Prepper, what it's about and how you got into it and then so how you got into it and then how you came to think about this facebook page
3: so what happened because rose and i are in an industry that's quite dominated by men we kind of gel together so we do have connections in that industry but because we're females i guess we connected together and we talk about different types of plants and things. So it was, and then we realised we had quite a lot in common, different interests, similar philosophies. And it was, so gardeners are often philosophers. There's a lot of discussions that happens in gardens. And we often talked about the economy and, you know, all sorts of things that were happening. And we were concerned that people didn't have enough of the skills that we had. Because if you cast your mind back to the 1940s or 50s, the skills that Rose and I have would have been common, but they've disappeared. And those skills are vital if something goes wrong. We'd already seen the 2000, 2008, 2009 economic sort of disruption in New Zealand. So we were aware of that and sort of didn't believe that it had been corrected Uh, So we ourselves were sort of preparing, but I think it was about during the Christchurch mosque incident, we really said to each other, hey, this idea we've had about, you know, presenting what we know, I think we need to step it up. It it kind of was a catalyst for us to start really thinking about what we should do. We we didn't really have any idea. So this is pre-pandemic. We didn't have any idea about what we were preparing for really except perhaps economic hard times and then of course the pandemic hit and there was all sorts of things that they that became sort of aware to us we had a YouTube channel at that stage and we used to do weekly lives on there we'd talk about what we thought was happening and that's kind of what started it we talked about um, medicines how how much stockpile the country would have. Sort of my own experience in pharmacy helped with that. And from there, oh, we did uh, hunting as well. So Rose is a keen hunter. We talked about hunting. And if you see our photo on our Facebook page, you'll see there's a picture of us together when we've been hunting um, in the Bay of Plenty. And we just weren't sure what people would want to know. And on YouTube, it, it was... Quite good. We were able to live stream there. But then we also thought, well, how about we spread those? Let's not have those eggs in every basket. So we started a Facebook page on uh, our Facebook page. We also have a Rumble page as a backup. So it was really just a backup. And that's the one that took off. So we sort of stick with that one mainly at the moment.
2: How interesting. And so, how did you learn? About Because I saw some trolls saying, oh, you're going to die, right, because you're not buying your food from the supermarket. Um, how did you learn what you can eat, how you can prepare it, and how you can use it? Where did you learn that from?
3: So some of it is just from knowledge from my family. So I've got a gardening family um, back, you know, forever probably. And so that link has never been broken. So I can ask my mum uh, and previously my grandmother. So already had a really good understanding of plants and how they were prepared. And I've just expanded on that. Just got curious about different ways of storing that perhaps storing food that is different to what I know. So just done a lot of research on that. For example, um, I've just posted a video on pemmican, which is a dehydrated meat mixed with fat used by the American Indians to travel great distances, carrying a light load. So that was just one that I did research on and thought, right, I've never done that. How about we try it out? So that was based on research and what other people were saying about it. And the same with uh, what can you eat? I've got a research background, so I've got a master's in science, but it's not to do with plants. But I use those skills to go and look at experiments done on plants and look at the phytochemicals or plant chemicals inside them and work out from there what's dangerous. And of course, a lot of plants are used in medicine and there is a lot of research on their toxicity. So if you know how to research that, you know where to find the information, then you can apply it to your foraging
2: So if the proverbial hits the fan, I should head to your place. Probably. (laughs) Because, like, you and Rose can hunt and get food. You You could survive, right?
3: That's right. The difference between us and a lot of other people who are in the same boat as us is they tend to be much more secretive. So we do have friends who have similar skills to ourselves, but you don't see them online. You, we might talk to them in private, but they they tend to be more lone wolf. They don't tend to be out there sharing what they know. Where, for me, I'm really about community. It would disturb me if people around me can't look after themselves. They're not prepared. So that's a big part of it for us. I think as a group the community is very important that they know what to do that they're prepared because for me and rose yeah it would be no problem for us just to go into the bush we'll just head off we're gone and we'll be in there you know laughing and talking philosophy and eating beautiful meat and harvesting berries from the bush but (laughs) we would know that outside people were in trouble when when times are hard or there's a, a disaster then people can get quite, uh, They turn to crying and they get desperate. You, when you know what we know, the, the sort of unsort of foreseen, perhaps, side effect of that is that you're very calm of mind, even mm. even if you don't have to use the knowledge that you have. Just knowing that you can do it is calming. In itself,
2: it's it's been quite a period in New Zealand and indeed around the world for thinking about how vulnerable your lifestyle is and what you would do if a particular circumstance hit. And we get I remember I'm much better prepared now than I was, but I remember getting in like a two-hour power cut and my world would fall (laughs) (laughs) apart. I've lived without power now for six months. And it's not, I mean, it's not been an issue. But when you just expect to turn a switch and have something come on and pop to the supermarket, and have a fridge full of food. Um, when things don't quite work out, then you feel extremely vulnerable. And like we've had, as you say, the terrorist attack in in Christchurch. What have we had? We've had the uh, Christchurch earthquakes. Um, we've had the COVID scare and lockdowns, um, the Koko earthquakes. What else have we had? Fires, the flooding, flooding. Oh yes, flooding, We've and it's just funny. about had it all. <laughs> yes, and and it's funny because the flooding has never affected me, and I've never witnessed it other than watching, you know, the news or Facebook, and it doesn't, it doesn't hit home. Because you sort of read it, and oh, yeah, okay, but it didn't hit home. For example, with Christchurch, I wasn't there for the earthquake, but I went down, I don't know, the day or two after, and they took me into the red zone, and I knew Christchurch well. And I remember going back to Wellington and to Auckland, and particularly walking down Newmarket, and picturing, say, Cashel Street, just all the buildings over, Mm. And you're thinking, goodness me, what, what would you do? You're in New Mar- you're in Newmarket and all those buildings are coming down. And I got very worried after Christchurch living in Wellington because you are easily trapped in Wellington if there's an earthquake. There was a scare, there was an earthquake scare while I was living in Wellington. And all the civil servants decided to go home early. And they couldn't, the trains couldn't run because they were worried about the lines being um, crooked. And it just gridlocked.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you think, I
2: think- you're, you're stuck.
3: I think that's why we see people moving around at the moment. People understand that they feel the same way and they're looking for alternatives. The city really isn't a good place to survive. It's not a good place to forage for food. It's uh, barren, really, isn't it?
2: And well, a disaster. In a disaster, you're yeah. absolutely. And also, of course, in a disaster, and you've got other people to contend with. That's so right. it's not just looking after you and your family. Everyone else is trying to look after them and their family, and if they get desperate, that becomes its own set of terrors.
3: That's right. You've got a a, a huge group of people there, quite dense, um, that uh, you know can be quite desperate in those situations.
2: So how do you think it's Kiwi Prepper we will get onto the foraging, but what are the sort of things that you are mindful of, you and Rose, of occurring that you need to be prepared for? How do you? What's your? How do you think about being prepared and being able to look after yourself? What? What's the like? Do you list off earthquake, fire, volcano, terrorist attack, mad government like we've had in the past? <laughs> um, do you tick all those things off, or is it just this? general sense of being of water, food, shelter and being able to get by with not much and whatever happens you'll be okay?
3: I think that's definitely the start of it, those basics, making sure that that we do have water, shelter, food and safety of course. So those ones are paramount and from then on you, know, you can look and think about different things like you know what would happen in an earthquake what would happen if one of these volcanoes goes off um a rogue government um you know there's right a lot of war there's yeah there's a lot of war in the world at the moment yes. so that should be at the back of somebody's mind i think that could cause all sorts of things it could cause food shortages um, I think we just sort of um, tack and jibe depending on what's going on because we defi- definitely, I can see people are strugg- struggling economically. Um, uh, in Auckland, I can see lots of empty uh, commercial buildings. Uh, so, empty as in nobody is uh, leasing them. So there's something happening in the economy there that's probably not going to have a very good trickle-down effect. And so, and, uh, and um, a lot of our seeds are imported from overseas. Uh, we just aren't growing enough to... Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yes, a lot of people don't know that. Um, people come up with ideas like, oh, I'm just going to grow microgreens, but that's a lot and a lot of seeds for... You know, you're eating hundreds of s- Cabbages, we'll say, in, in one sort of sitting, and where are those seeds coming from? If somebody's uh, growing microgreens in bulk, those seeds are coming from overseas. So they could be disrupted quite quickly. Um, a lot of people can't afford to um, be growing microgreens. They don't have access to their own property where they can grow. They might be moving around a bit more. Um, agricultural societies are uh, for a stable society and it's sort of my feeling in roses as well I expect that we aren't as stable as we should be we tend seem to have a lot of people uh, quite transient moving around so that's why we've sort of moved into the foraging side of it as well because um I'd like people to be confident that if they do have to move they can at least gather from nature what is there growing rather than it's easier in some ways. I think it's easier. I mean, that would be my approach. If something goes wrong, I'm not too fussed about, you know, setting up a garden. I'll probably just head to the ocean, fish and uh, maybe do a little bit of hunting and, you know, eat what nature has provided and gather any medicinal herbs that I need along the way.
2: The, um, That's the advice, isn't it, is to have a wee fishing line and head to the coast in New Zealand.
3: It is, but you need to be – I mean, our coasts are quite rugged, so you need to um, be aware of that. And I mean, there's certainly plenty of food out there, but it's whether you can get it or not. And, I mean, mean, there's days when I've been fishing and I've not caught anything, so um, you might be – might be very hungry. But there are other people who who have a passion for diving and fishing. And they have quite big pages. Like that area is covered. And I hope people who are thinking about that definitely get their fishing skills up and their snorkeling skills up because our coasts are very rugged, very, very rugged.
2: We live in Otago. And um I have to put on my big boy pants because we could live forever on rabbits. <laughs> mm. <laughs> You're not going to... There's <laughs> like, I was going to get some chooks and I thought, hang on, um, I've got thousands of rabbits running past my door, um, but I haven't quite bucked up the courage. I'm a bit squeamish. You know what I mean? I can kill a <laughs> rabbit. But I go to I go to cut it up, and I can cut it up okay. Right, I've never been a fisherman. I can cut the rabbit up okay, but I just can't get to the bit where I'm dealing in blood and guts, and then I'm cooking it and eating it. Ooh. And the funny thing is, I can eat rabbit if I haven't cut up and cut ah. it. In- <laughs> so, um. <laughs> My thing, my my nine year old is all keen. He gets rabbits and starts cutting them up. And um I say, Oh, not tonight, son. Um, because <laughs> I sort of look at it and I feel a bit maybe I have to sort of hide away while he does it. Um maybe. But that's that was my thinking. I thought, I think, gee whiz, we've got so many rabbits. You couldn't, you 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 know, you can shoot a hundred rabbits and you wouldn't know.
3: That's right. I mean, and in the past, people did eat a lot of rabbits. My uncles and aunties as well, they often talk about, in the past, checking rabbit traps on the way to school when they were really mm. young. Mm. Um, and one of, one of my uncles, you know, he claims he can skin a rabbit in, I don't know, under a minute or something, 60 seconds, something like that. Um, I haven't seen him do that, but well, uh, it just, show, just shows you that um, those skills certainly can be you know, if people were doing that in the past, there's a reason for that. You know, It's yes. um, plentiful and easy to catch, have, like rabbits.
2: I have recently, um, with Wally Richards' help, developed a passion for gardening. Mm. And I've got a bountiful garden. But, oh my goodness, I can't imagine living. I was reflecting on this with our early settlers. And you imagine you arrive and you climb over the port hills or whatever, and you think, "Oh my goodness, i've gotta you know eke out a living here." I can't imagine relying on my vegetable game at the moment, right? I don't have sufficient mm. skills mm. I gotta still run off to the supermarket because I never staggered my lettuce planting appropriately, or um my potatoes aren't quite quite ready, and yet a couple of generations ago three generations ago four generations and then forever people actually relied on their gardening and hunting skills and their farming skills to feed their family
3: that's right so my parents did do that and also my grandparents so i'm probably the only one that hasn't really you know set up a huge garden and be mm-hmm. laboring over it but i do garden for other people but um yeah it's just Those skills, they take a little while to build up. Um, It sounds so easy to plant a lettuce, and it is.
2: Yes, but but they (laughs) rely on it.
3: And, and of course, there's different lettuces for different seasons and different parts of the country. Uh, You know, some grow better in winter, some grow in summer, some grow super quick. Um, But they're so easy to grow. You can end up with a massive glut and then you haven't staggered it or you've got not enough room. Mm. It's a learning curve. It takes a couple of seasons, so a couple yes. of years, really. And you you do have to make those mistakes, and then people mm. will talk about it and say, uh, you know, oh, you really don't need to plant 100 lettuces all at once. But And even that is quite fiddly to just to plant a few. You really only need a few going at once and yes. just stagger them through the season.
2: Yes. And, then, uh, and knowing your local microclimate, where your garden is, that's um, right. You need to put your uncle <laughs> on your Facebook for me. I do. I,
3: I do. He's a great
2: gardener. Okay, no, but put him on the one that can skin a rabbit in a minute.
3: Yeah. Oh yeah, I should get put, him doing
2: it. Yeah, put him on. Show us skin, him skinning in a minute with the clock <laughs> on, so we can see whether he's <laughs> a, he's a, he's he's telling us the truth, and then <laughs> have him explain how you do it. Yeah. And maybe if I watch that a hundred times. I could overcome the squeamishness uh, yeah. of it, because um, what do you hunt?
3: Uh, me personally, I tend to be more of a fisher, okay. fisherman. So I'm. I've lived by the coast my whole life, so that's sort of my approach to it. Um, and I would be more of a small game person. I probably because they're heavy. They're heavy.
4: Yeah. Um
3: I personally like um, things like rabbits and uh, ducks and goats, smaller, smaller game would be. So you mine. eat them, you eat rabbits. I, I have. I've eaten possum as well, but I'm not particularly keen on that. Um probably wouldn't eat that again. But uh, rabbit is rabbit is that's food of the kings. Um mm. So is pheasants and uh, deer. Obviously, we've got a lot of deer in this country, but we've got a lot of goats as well. And in my experience, they taste just like uh, just like lamb. They're not as fatty as lamb, but uh, most people wouldn't be able to tell the difference between those. Well, the those thing and
2: lamb. is, I I don't eat fish, and ah, um, okay. but if you're hungry, you. <laughs> must
3: <laughs> yeah there's fish and there's fish though there's fish and there's fish yeah, um i also true. eat shellfish as well so i'm a diver as well mm. um so yeah I, it's just you do what you know best i think and uh those are areas it's an area that i'm more confident in. and but, what does um,
2: rose hunt she hunts big game
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so she's more of a big game hunter um but, yeah, probably more of a hunter than fishing. And I don't think she dives from memory. Uh, so she's more inland. Yeah, she's really into that. She's done a lot of hunting. Um, and She
2: looked quite formidable on <laughs> Facebook when she goes hunting. Like, she's not someone I'd want to blunder across um, <laughs> and get on the wrong side of when she's carrying her gun. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Oh, she's a responsible gun owner. So oh, I'm sure. it's unlikely you'd have any problems.
2: Yeah. Um and do you have a gun?
3: My I have a slug gun, but so I don't have anything that's required to have a license. I've also got a hunting bow, um, but that's not required to have a license either. So I'm out of the system.
2: <laughs> well, that's what's always stopped me. Um 'Cause to get rabbits you're best to have a um a gun. Not well slug gun, is,
3: slug gun is slug gun fine for rabbits, yeah, you Where
2: don't... I live, you gotta get pretty how far away can you get a rabbit with your slug gun? Oh, 50
3: fifty metres.
2: No. Oh, you see you so <laughs> how good. close
3: do you have to be, right?
2: <laughs> oh, I sort of miss it ten meters.
3: <laughs> you've got to sit out there you've got to sit out there <laughs> and watch them that Oh really. Oh yeah. Well you definitely shouldn't be getting no, a well, gun.
2: No, I'm hopeless. And um I might I might set some traps or something, but I'm I'm not a good shot and I got glasses now and it's all about I can see two rabbits when I'm trying to shoot. Which one (laughs) am I trying to shoot? And 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 then I get wobbly and then I think, oh, my back's hurting and I'm sitting here trying to shoot this rabbit. Um but I didn't want to get a gun gun because I had a friend come with a gun gun. And I mean, he just—he could just shoot thirty rabbits in a few minutes, literally. Yeah. Like wow, well, they'd yeah. run off, but come back, and he'd ping another couple. But it's this idea that once you get a gun, the police can just turn up and inspect your house. You're on a registrar. Um, you can get hassled by the police. They probably wouldn't because you know they've got better things to do. But it's just such a palaver. So I thought, well, I'll just get a slug gun. By the way, my son is a better shot than me, so I'll get him to shoot the rabbits.
3: Um, Yeah, and I think it depends, you know, sort of what network you have. Um, So, I mean, I've got a a slug gun, which is capable of, you know, small, very small sort of uh, animals. And then I've got a hunting bow, which is capable of a bigger animal. So I don't really need, but of course it's a lot more skill to catch a, a bigger animal with a hunting bow than it is a gun, mm. but it's it's and of course there's rules around your bows. They have to be powerful enough for you to be allowed to take them into the um, forest. They don't, you know, you're not allowed to take in sort of weak, weak hunting bows and you know just, just tap hurt, them hurt on an yeah. animal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: You, so there me, you two in the bush would be sounding a bit like deliverance. <laughs>
3: Oh, yeah, we might be up there and you never know where we are in ghillie suits sitting in the bush.
2: Yeah. And in the – what about water? How do you prepare for with water?
3: So on Waiheke Island, everyone has their own water tanks and uh, own septic as well. So that – I think uh, when I first moved to Waiheke, because I wasn't born there, I emptied someone's water tank in a day, you know, just washing, you know, a pair of jeans a couple of times, I, I was, I just was used to leaving the tap running and, you know, having, you know, 20, 30 minute showers. So that was a, a real wake up call. And um, I think that in in the early days, Rose and I did do a bit of a video about, you know, water, collecting water is a, is a major thing. You've either got to have something to collect it and you've got, you've got to put it somewhere or you've got to make uh, an area where it will collect or you've got to know where the streams are. For somebody like me, I I definitely pay more attention to where the streams are, where the springs are. We often uh, walk through the bush looking to see the where the streams are and where the springs come out. Uh, I think that's really important um, because water is important for not only yourself, but if you are going to be running a garden where you're staying, you need to have water, don't you? Mm. And and it's. And it's this gardening that sort of makes you look at the landscape. And it's when you're looking at this landscape that you become aware of areas that flood. So I think this is sort of a side effect of gardening as well, is that people are forced to take more pay more attention to the natural layout of the land, the way you know you can look up at the hills and you should be able to see how much rain can come down. If you're somewhere like the Kaimais, for example, very, a lot of hill there, a lot of streams in there all coming together and then you should be able to see there's, you know, a big flood plain and um, you should be able to work out where you don't want to be living and where you do. Um, I think one of the problems with these sort of floodplains, is that all the good soil is down there as well. So that's a catch-22, and I think that's why people often get stuck in these sort of flat areas that uh, they're just so productive. It's sort of Mm. um, misleading how safe you are in those areas.
2: It's interesting what you say about being observant and being um, interested in it. I never was. For example, I never understood why we had weather forecasts because in my early days, I'd work outside, and if it got wet, you know, I'd get wet. If it rained, I'd get wet. And then later on, I was always in an office, and I had no interest in <laughs> other than running from the car um, to work, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. And, <laughs> and then I'm now doing gardening and outside a lot, and I'm fascinated by the weather. And I keep an eye on the forecast and, you know, I know what the wind is going to do. I know what the weather's going to do. And then likewise, once I got gardening, I became so observant about what's happening in the garden. I used to just, my mother would be showing off her garden and my dad always had a great vegetable garden, and I'd never notice it. I just yeah, had no, no interest in it. And you just, if you want something, you go to the supermarket. And the idea that you would grow it was incomprehensible to me.
3: Yeah, you're right. Uh, most people are like that, and it's not until they go out and start looking at these things, gardening or hunting even, where you're, when someone's out hunting, you'll find a lot of hunters are actually very good um, in terms of what's growing in the bush because the animal they're hunting is also eating certain plants and mm. they are only they may only be there at a certain time of the year they may be moving around so you develop this understanding and um, they may be in a different place in a different weather and it's the same in the ocean you soon learn you know you can't walk barefoot on oyster rocks and you learn there's the, about the tides the king low tide and the king high tides and what that exposes and the fish all have a cycle they move around and it's all connected to the moon and yeah, it's it's such a big connection and it's not until you actually go out and participate in it that you get those skills back and the weather is a critical part of that.
2: Mm. Uh, you're on Reality Check Radio, it's real talk with uh, Rodney Hyde and uh, we're having a fascinating talk, uh, talking to Carolyn Eichler and she's got a Facebook page, her and Rose Clark, called Prepper Kiwi. And it's wonderful. And that's what we're discussing, that preparation. I have a friend who's a, um, I hope he's not listening. Um, He's a bit, what's it when you get obsessive? He's a bit obsessive. (laughs) And after the Christchurch earthquakes, which he was in the middle of, he became obsessive about um, being prepared. And like, he's got, he spent, a, he spent an arm and a leg, a small fortune, getting all this equipment and gear and what can happen and drinking straws and uh, bows and arrows and crossbows and throwing axes and uh, mostly weapons. No, um, but, he's, and he's got go-bags in every vehicle, go-bags at every place, like he wouldn't go into town without a go-bag uh, ready to go because he got caught in the earthquake. Mm -hmm. and so you can sort of understand it. And the funny thing is he will read something in these on the internet about what you need and have to rush off and get it. And I, I myself came to a conclusion that maybe resilience is not about having everything ready to go, but a state of mind and an attitude.
3: I think you're right. I th- from my perspective, that would be how I look at it. It's being adaptable under pressure. I yes. Think. A- and having the skills, having the skills a- and backing, required. And
2: backing yourself that you can cope.
3: That's right. That's right. I mean, we've had quite a few pressurised years um, with the pandemic, and that was a real eye-opener in terms of who could – um, what's called anti-fragile, I guess you know what that is. That's the yeah, term I'll coined by Nassim Salib. So you grow under pressure. For example, there's a tree called the cypress tree. Uh, they bend into the wind. So when you look at them and they're bent, the wind is actually coming towards the way they bend. So that's an anti-fragile plant. And some people are like that. They really do well under pressure. Yes. And I think that type of person... Um, I, I probably consider myself and Rose that type of person. Um, it's you sort of grow, you almost look forward to a bit of pressure coming on to challenge yourself because it's those experiences that help you grow. And I think we need to be careful not to not to think that a whole lot of uh, material things are going to be our solution. If I just go back to the pemmican, which the American Indians, Um, made to travel that's the reason that people could um, make a lot of money in the fur trade is because they adopted or they had faith that these people could travel with these very light loads because the British for example you know they had packs and packs and packs you know really prepared but it wasn't possible the amount of calories that they were consuming it wasn't possible to travel those distances with the um, amount of weight that mm. they had. so you can you can be prepared till the cows come home, Rodney, but it's more about your mind and sort of having faith in yourself that you've got what it takes to you know walk out of here. I mean uh, uh, people talk about bug out bags and uh, things like that. I think you are your best asset in that yeah. bug out bag mm.
2: I had a I had that experience. I had an old car that I loved, and I learned to fix it up. And then whenever I'd go traveling in it, I would think, oh, X, Y, Z can happen. And so I'd always take a big toolkit. And I was always worried that I'd have the tools necessary, spare fan belts and things like that. And then I got to a place where I actually backed myself to fix it with what tools I had which was another level of fixing this car and that's i guess what i was thinking about with being resilient not that i particularly am i'm probably that fragile little flower not that hardy cypress tree but i think awesome. about it and i think and i think about it a lot for my children because like you i think we could be heading for rough times mm. and when you think about preparing them um, I think a lot about their resilience and their ability under pressure to be calm and think through problems and it's funny thing is that we can you can instill that in a child and I think we've lost that. my kids are actually now pretty good at it um, they wouldn't They wouldn't, you know, and I do that by taking them camping and um, hiking and just things that are uncomfortable and getting through. And, you know, you go hiking and you get to a place and you think, well, the only person that's going to get us out of here is us on our two little legs. Um, And so we do it or we forgot something or we haven't got food, we're just going to have to make two. And it's... I notice with them, they have become into that uh, state of mind where they don't whine and complain. They attend to it and fix it.
3: Yeah, that's a good place to be, isn't
2: it? It's an extremely good place to be. Um, by the way, I I'm, you know, I'm, I don't do these things, so I'm talking about observing it, but my kids are big into jiu-jitsu, which has been amazing. Because what that has taught them is you can when you're rolling someone or fighting someone in a competition, you can be extremely uncomfortable. Right? Because mm. they'll have a little kid got their arm around them and starting to choke them. And what they learn in jiu jitsu is to think it through. And you watch them over time as they learn the skill of jujitsu, and they'll have someone giving them a sore arm or starting to choke them around the air pipes or the carotid and you can see these little kids saying, hang on, I'm not, I'm not out yet. And they'll think their way through it and use their technique and it's like this massive problem solving. When you're extremely uncomfortable... And that's what we don't have in our modern world because we expect to be extremely comfortable at all times.
3: That's right. We do. We've just come to um, expect that. I was reading recently about um, one of the early boats that came to New Zealand um, from England, and I was thinking about what they packed with them. and one part of that story was the uh, the boat stopped and everyone was shooting. Everyone was shooting off the back at seabirds. And I was thinking, everyone packed a gun. Everyone yeah. took a gun with them. So things like having a means to get, and, and that would have been good food, um, you know, yeah, big, big seabirds. Good food for a long journey was a very long journey to get to New Zealand months to get here then. And they would have been observant of the weather as well. But... Um, a good work boots, good hunting and tramping boots, good a gun and a knife, and just a packet of you know a few seeds is really all you need to have, isn't it? And you know I had
2: a I had a gentleman on the show, who was a prepper, and he was very excellent. And he got caught in the Kaikoura earthquakes, and he said the stupid thing was, he was very well prepared at home. But when the earthquake hit, he was some kilometres from home in his car in Jandals.
3: Yeah. (laughs) And he said,
2: I didn't even have bloody shoes. And he said, I had to walk all this distance in my Jandals. He says, I've never gone in my car again without having shoes in the boot.
3: Yeah. So being a landscaper, uh, or a gardener, you often travel with tools that are a multi-purpose, like the, the type of saw that we use is perfect yeah. for in the bush. Um, you always have you know, a pair of gumboots or a pair of tramping boots, several sometimes, several pairs of socks because you're changing them depending on the weather. You always have a jacket, a proper jacket, and, and generally water as well. So if I'm traveling, uh, those are normally just left in there. A lot of those things are just left yeah. in there um, what so do that you- if something does happen.
2: What would you do in the bush for shelter?
3: For shelter? Well, I've got um, a Gore-Tex bivy bag. So that's like a military grade, like a cocoon that goes over a sleeping bag. So that, that would be the type of thing that I would use um, and very lightweight. Um, if I was tra- trapped in there, I guess I'd just um, find a suitable place and dig down and cover myself up with uh, bits and pieces but again the, the knowledge of different plants that are in there would give you a bit of a um a, a good understanding about what plants you could potentially use and uh, knowing which plants have got the wetters in them is probably one of the most important things I'd be worried about
2: <laughs> what oh you don't want the wetters in your bed
3: <laughs> no 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 I don't like them
2: isn't it funny mm. my wife would freak out if she saw a mice a mouse <laughs> She's um, hysterical about mice, and um, and so that would be – mind you, I imagine if you're stuck and it's Armageddon, you know, a few wetters would be the least of your worries.
1: Um,
3: I think there's just an innate response to them. Um, mm. They tend to get in my hair if they come inside. I don't know. Uh. They think it's a nest or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> but yeah, now, and they're very clingy too. <laughs> The the thing
2: that, <laughs> I remember, Wayne Brown, uh, mayor of Auckland. Now he used to head up the I can't remember electricity part that run ran the grid. So he wasn't. He was a very clever engineer, very clever, big picture thinking guy. And he came to see me when I was minister, and he was explaining the fragility of our national grid, you know, this is back over 10 years ago, Mm. and how it can just collapse. That's right. And then I was local government and I got involved with infrastructure in Auckland. And it's truly shocking how we've built, because, you know, You just get by each year, and this water supply, water disposal, and surge disposal, it's sort of just been built on top of it over the Mm. years. And this infrastructure that you rely on can easily go whoa.
3: Yeah, well, living on Waiheke, that's – it's not really a problem because it's self-sufficient in, in most ways. So you um, have if,
2: to have your own power supply, do you?
3: You don't have to, but because your water is coming off your roof, you might have a you know, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000-gallon tank, um, depending on what you've, you're using. Um, you've got water, for starters, uh, so you can you know just lift the lid on that and just bucket it out. So straight away you've got water.
2: You've got a septic Um, tank.
3: And you've got a septic. So that's your water and your sewage sorted. Um, And most people have a barbecue. So, you know, you can barbecue for a long time.
2: And a generator?
3: A lot of people, uh, a lot of wealthy people have generators. Mm. Um, They don't publicize the fact. Uh, A lot of wealthy people on Waiheke are off the grid already. So they've mm. got some pretty flash setups, um, and they've got big, big tanks of water. Uh, they're not going to be ha- having any um, issues if the if the grid goes down. It's just the people. Uh, so so, so Prepper Kiwi isn't really um, addressing those people because they're already prepared, uh, mm. and they've got the funds to cover but their whole house and solar panels. It
2: goes. It goes back to our point. They're prepared materially.
1: Yeah, But you've that's got to true. be
2: prepared mentally and philosophically too. Yes. Um, and funnily enough, now that I think about it, I am one of those people that enjoy getting into problems. Mm. Yeah, I do, I actually. <laughs> like, I get a huge pleasure <laughs> when my car breaks down.
3: <laughs> oh okay yeah it's a learning uh, I, experience yeah
2: I just suddenly realized I am when things go wrong I think oh this is exciting mm. so funny enough I hadn't thought of that until you said I actually do um even stupid things like flat tires or someone someone's mm. got a big problem and I actually oh this is great um I don't because. Things come into perspective a lot. You know, it's dark, it's raining, and your car's broken down in the middle of nowhere, yeah. and there's no cell phone recovery, coverage. Yeah. And you think, oh, what do I do? i got to figure this out. Um,
3: it's very just- rewarding. It's very rewarding when you're successful uh, in those sort of challenges and you go to another level. It's anything you do um, yeah. that you challenge yourself. A lot of people won't break through that. But once you challenge yourself, like like starting a, uh, a Facebook page and putting your yourself up there for criticism, is very difficult at the start. Mm. But if you, if you know that that there's going to be a, a reward from that, you carry on. So you get to you actually like these challenges. You like to look for problems almost as, mm. as you're saying there. And this is what I noticed at the start of the pandemic was that some people were so broken by it, then others were saying things like, I feel like this is the time I was born for. It. And Do you know it broke I, me? I did it. Yes. I did it, really.
2: Mm-hmm. A- a- it totally broke me. And, I mean, it broke me in a strange way
1: mm.
2: because – I thought I understood politics and how decisions were made and, yes, they make dopey decisions. When they had that first lockdown, I didn't think it would last two days because mm-hmm. I thought there's no way people are going to put up with this nonsense. And it broke me because I watched friends and neighbours get into it and become little Nazis monitoring how long my kids were out playing in the park.
3: Yeah, I I think the problem there is people aren't adaptable. So for me... um, I Absolutely. didn't mind being
2: shut down I didn't mind that yeah. it was mm. it was it was everyone's behavior that they just accepted it and would stand yeah. on a stand on a I remember listeners might be sick of me I think I've mentioned this once before but I remember going to the supermarket it was pouring with rain we're standing outside the countdown on our yellow dot and everyone masked up And I'm sitting there. I try and jog along and not be a nuisance because I'm used to being um, thinking differently to everyone else and so I I know not to create trouble. So I'm sort of complying in a desultory way and not trying to upset anyone. And you're standing there and there's this young mum in front of me with a jolly toddler standing in the rain apologising to everyone because she had a toddler with her, because you only allowed mm. one person to go shopping. <laughs> and there's someone at the door leading you in when someone goes out. And that broke yeah. me because I thought, how could you do that to a young? How could you do that to people? How could you do that to a young man? And of course, everything else that we know about. And so, what broke me, I guess, was our government's performance, our opposition's. Performance, all our government department's performance, everyone around me's performance. And I left Christchurch. And once I got out of Christchurch, I was fine.
3: Because
2: mm. it was but, the it was the behavior of well, you realize how bad things can happen.
3: That's right. It was a real eye-opener how people behaved. And and it was an eye-opener just how reliant people were on the government rather yes. than on their Thinking communities and on themselves and the weakness mm. in their emotional strength. They, they couldn't see through it. They weren't calm. They were panicked. No. And it was very difficult to find out who was going to act that way. Um, myself, I'm a beekeeper, so <clears throat> I wasn't really locked down. I was able to drive around wow. and visit my beehives, which were on several different properties. And there was I, I was able to witness another side of the population who weren't locked down at all. There were people out fishing. There yeah. were saw, you know, that there, there were people at the beach on Waiheke. I drove past one of the beaches and I just stopped instead. It was covered in people. It looked like something from I would say the nineteen seventies. People were down there with wine glasses on the beach. You couldn't see them. You couldn't see them. And I stopped, and and I and people turned around. They were just sitting there with a, a wine. And I said, "Oh, sorry, I'm just can't believe people are down here." People were just wandering up and down the streets, talking to you. Um, so there was sort of two sides to how people yeah. handled that. Um, and being being of calm mind uh, is is um, so important. It's detrimental to your health not to mm. be um, able to sort of work out how to put yourself in that position. Mm.
2: Fascinating. That's Kiwi Pepper. We've been talking to Carolyn Eichler and I do encourage you to go to her Facebook page, uh, Pepper Kiwi and Rose Clark's. Got wonderful videos and I don't expect everyone to rush out and get a hunting bow, I won't be, but um to think about how we can be prepared, but also just wonderful little things. I'm going to try that, making that sea salt, Carolyn.
3: Well, good. Just for yeah. the fun of it.
2: It just looked cool. fun, right?
3: Well, I learned that as a child. I used to do that when I was five or six. My mum would send us to the beach to make sea salt because we didn't have the internet then, and you had to keep kids entertained.
2: Yeah, and of course the thing about the great thing about the internet is you can find out, you can like Google how to make salt. And you think back to the day, it's like I I'm a big bread breaker, bread bread baker. And I learned to mm. bake bread by, you know, searching the internet. But our nannas could bake bread. And um, they didn't even have books on how to bake bread, but they learned from their mum. That's right and Dad's learned how to shoe a horse from Dad. You know, it was like those skills were passed down and we're actually having to relearn them. We get excited when we grow a lettuce and it yeah. would have been nothing to That's previous right. generations to, I mean, it was just a nothing to my parents' generation to grow everything you ate. I had, I I, I do go on Facebook and I had a great thing that came, popped up on Facebook and or, or, or X or something, and I saw, and it said um, to those people that want to save the planet and are running around protesting, they, you should say to them, here's a good thing that you can do. Grow everything that you need to eat next year.
3: Yeah, exactly. And exactly. I love
2: that, right? Mm. You know, because you can imagine these kids who are out there, not so young kids, protesting and throwing stuff at beautiful paintings about climate oh, yeah. and all if you just said to them, just produce everything that you're going to eat for next year. And it would literally improve their mental health and their outlook and actually be the best thing they could do for the planet.
3: Yeah, I think you're probably right there. What you were saying there about handing down that knowledge through families, that's definitely how it was done. And at the moment, you know, we've got this whole generation and several generations that don't have that knowledge. And the benefit of this social media is. Um, that we're well aware of is we can reach so many more people. I mean, I look how many people viewed that salt one.
2: I know, half a million. It's astonishing, isn't it?
3: I already knew that people didn't know how to do that because I've shown people individually in the past. I've said, oh, I've just made some sea salt. So, you know, five or six. But using this platform, I can show, you know, know, half a million people. And it's so easy. And then they'll show their kids. One of the things about this platform, which is uh, unusual, when I think about it from a business point of view, is that success of this platform, this Prepper Kiwi, is also the end of the platform. The goal is that everyone will end up knowing as much as Rose and I do, and then there'll be no need for it anymore. It'll yes. just carry on. So that, yes. that's an unusual – the more success, it's going to uh, shut down in the, in the end, which is – is an odd way to look at it. It is a,
2: a funny way of looking at. You're dead right. You're absolutely dead right because it's mm. not needed and we don't want it.
3: No, I was, meantime, I was just common. I was just common in the 1950s. There would have been a lot of people like yes. myself and Rose. Yes. Um, so I, I hope we get back to that. Yes. Good for you,
2: uh, Carolyn Eichler, Radley Check Radio Real Talk. That was a real talk. What a wonderful woman. <laughs> She's got a lovely style you can hear in her voice where it's quite hard to do and she does it on her Facebook where she's explaining something and not coming across as a know-all and not making you feel stupid and inadequate. You've got a wonderful, wonderful style in those videos, Carolyn. It's sort of like you are a lovely teacher.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Rodney. really appreciate that
2: feedback. I can hear you in the voice. You take care. It's Rally Check Radio. We'll talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, my goodness, aren't we blessed? Uh, such lovely, lovely people to talk to and such lovely, lovely listeners. Remember, you can send me your feedback 2057. Email me inbox at Oh, I feel all warm and cozy inside thinking about how people can look after themselves and look after others um, with the right attitude and the knowledge. Thank you for listening. There was Carolyn Eichler, Pepper. Oh my goodness! Amazing, 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 fascinating stuff. And you got to see the you got to see the picture of these two ladies when they're all geared up on their Facebook. Oh, it's a wonder to behold. Pretty scary. They sort of look like SAS, you know, going undercover, ready, ready for action.
1: Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now.
2: You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, remember, you can send me a text, 2057, email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. Oh, we have back now our Professor Gardening Guru, the incomparable, wonderful, I sound like it's a circus act, Wally Richards. Good morning, Wally.
0: Yeah, and the ringmaster has spoken. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I always enjoy chatting with you, Wally. Tell me, what what gives you your good outlook on life, do you think?
0: What is my outlook on life?
2: No, you have such a good outlook on life, I feel. Uh-huh. You're always easygoing. Yeah. You're always pleasant. You're uh-huh. always happy. What do you think does that?
0: Oh, I don't know. Probably... Being amongst the garden and plants, and um, it's relaxing and stressless. And Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, people that get into nature are not grumpy, but I am called a grumpy old man by people. Oh, well,
2: we've all got that. Yeah, yeah. You can't stop being an old man, and they just attach the grumpy to it because – um, what happens is you say, well, hang on, that's not quite right, and they say, oh, you're grumpy. You say, no, but it's still not right.
0: I've got uh, a big sign on my door, warning, grumpy old man. <laughs>
2: what are you picking up around the country in the people's gardens?
0: Oh, quite a few things happening at the moment. Um, we've got people, uh, of course, have problems where it hasn't been raining. Uh, watering the gardens. Um, that's, Why is that's
2: watering a, a garden the problem? Why is that a problem?
0: Because there's no rain, no and water restrictions. You know, in some areas. Oh, really? Um, that that's that's not good. Somebody in Auckland the other day said, "Oh, thank God, we've got some rain at last." You know. Um, so, so you could
2: have a you could you could be in Auckland with a beautiful garden and all your veggies and flowers, and there's no rain. And then the council say, "Oh there's water restrictions on, and your garden doesn't isn't that, you're not allowed to water your own garden.
0: That's the way it goes, yeah, or you're limited to times of watering and and only hand watering, which is good. I mean to so say these sprinkler systems, irrigation systems, um, they are uh, easy, but they're not good because they mm-hmm. often apply too much water. And it's a waste um, where the best way to water anything is you get yourself a a wand, a watering wand, and you attach it to your hose with definitely, now listen, wait for this, with a housing and filter to remove the chlorine. Yes. Most important, right? Yes. Because you're going to kill everything if if you don't. Remove the chlorine. And here's another interesting one. I've had several people get the um, housing and filter off me recently, and I've said to them, now, what you should do is put a two-way adapter on your tap. So one side goes the housing and filter, and you snap your garden hose onto that and water your garden, right? Okay, that's cool. But the other side, if you've got to wash down the path or something like that, don't waste your chlorinated, non-chlorinated water. On the path, it's not necessary, right? But if you're going to wash the car or the windows, use filtered water. Why? Because when you wash with chlorinated water, you get the streaks. Mm -hmm. And that's a chlorine that's left behind when the water evaporates.
2: My goodness.
0: Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. And then they get, they wash the car, and my God, they come back and have to rub all the streaks off. Use filtered water.
2: So tell me, you would you would recommend watering your garden standing there with a wand?
0: Yes, yes, because while you're doing that, you could be pulling out a few odd weeds, right? Yes. So you're not wasting your time by any means just holding your hose. Can you do out. two things at once? Yeah, and then you're checking the plants. You're looking, oh, oh, there's some aphids on that one. i better fix that, right? So you're observing. And yes. you're tidying up at the same time. If you've got roses, you've got your secateurs in your back pocket, you've got your hose in one hand, secateurs in the other hand, and you're deadheading the roses so that you so get it's another.
2: Not, it's not wasted time.
0: No, and it's very relaxing watering the garden. Mm. You're just standing there, hose in hand, <laughs> having fun. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, um, I get that. How do you know that you've given a plant enough water?
0: Ah, Now, the key to this is, of course, watering every day unless it rains. And this means your moisture level, you're watering the top of the soil, which is keeping the underground water moist or the soil underneath moist. If you let the soil dry out by not watering every day, then, of course, you've got to give it a a fair drink to get that water down below. And also, the big problem happens is you get a thing called dry spot, or, as we say, surface tension. Surface tension is caused by the soil getting all the growing medium in containers getting to the point that water will not penetrate, it shears off goes to the side. Easy to see in a lawn where you have a a brown patch in your lawn right? and around the circumference, all the grass is lovely and green because when it rains or when you water the water is shedding off and going to the grass at the side. The grass in the middle has uh, gone brown. It hasn't died but it's just sitting there waiting for a drink and to overcome that problem in a lawn you, or in your garden, or even in container plants, because when you water a container plant this time of the year, often they've dried out so much that you pour the water in with your watering can, and it runs straight through down the sides of the pot out to the saucer. Mm. Huh? The plant gets a little wee drink on the way through, and that's it. Next day, it's got its tongue out again, going, "Ah, where's the water?" So. When you have container plants, and if the plants in the containers are not too big, you should plunge them into a tub of water or bucket of water, right? And then you hold them down below the surface of the container and watch the bubbles. And it just goes bubble, 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 bubble. And lots and lots of bubbles. Every bubble indicates a dry spot, right? Surface tension. When, when it stops bubbling, you lift it up and you let it drain a little bit and then you put it back in the saucer or whatever, right? If the container plant is too big to do that, then you use your dishwashing liquid, and it's the only useful thing for dishwashing liquid. You add dishwashing liquid to your um, watering, or warm water, lather it up a bit, water that into the top of the mix, that will start to break down the surface tension, right? And it starts start to allow the mix to go and be nice and wet when you do water. Outside, same thing applies. Watering can, warm water, dishwashing liquid, lathered up, water into the dry spot on the lawn, and hey press. So when you water, the water will go in instead of shedding off. It's a big problem this time of the year.
2: You don't use dishwashing liquid on your dishes.
0: No, we have a dishwashing machine. We oh. have little, little <laughs> plastic bags with, say, with, with funny things in them, <laughs> and we turn that on at night. <laughs> I,
2: I was sitting there saying the only thing. Tell me, and the dishwashing liquid won't upset the plants.
0: No, but some people think that um using soapy water will kill insects and in a sense they're correct but it's a type of soapy water right now the only type of soapy water that works is the old-fashioned big yellow cake lux uh, sunlight soap right you yeah. know the big big long cakes in it we yeah. used to use in the old boiler when we were yeah. going to boil up our clothes etc they were the days my god No bacteria in those clothes after being in there for a bloody hour, boiled to pieces, and then out in the sunlight. So, and what used to happen? After the boiler washing had been done and they cooled down, you would bucket it out, and what would you do with it? You would pour the buckets of water over your roses, Right and your oases would have no aphids. They'd be pest-free, right? Because the old-fashioned sunlight soap has got fatty acids. Those fatty acids break down the soft bodies of insects, such as aphids. So if you want to use soap to kill your aphids, you've got to get the old-fashioned sunlight. You lather that up, and then you put that in your sprayer, and you spray the aphids, and uh, that'll do the trick. Right, It won't work on all insects, but it'll work on fat-bodied like aphids.
2: It's an interesting thing. You mentioned old-fashioned soap. I don't have a sensitivity to anything, but I discovered, or I knew, I can't use normal soap, and I particularly can't use that liquid stuff that people have in their bathroom. And I found the only soap I could use was dove soap. I felt like a, I felt like a um, pansy, you know, like a little girl or something because you think of yourself as a rough, tough thing, but it always make my skin crawl. Cool. And so I took to making my own soap. I've made my own soap for years and years and years. It's very easy to do. Mm. And my skin is fine. But every now and then, If I go into a public restroom or something and I use the soap, it affects my hands. Isn't that funny? But ordinary soap.
0: Yeah, you're still using caustic soda to set the soap, aren't you? Yes, yes. So it's not the caustic soda. No. It must be other Things they put in.
2: I, I use, what do you use? Caustic soda and I use vegetable and animal fat, a bit of a mixture of two, and I make soap. Every, whenever, whenever I get low on soap, I go and make some with caustic soda and I use beef lard and a little bit of olive oil,
0: right? Yeah. And
2: um, I love it and it lathers up, just like you say. And um, my wife has everywhere those stupid liquid things, she loves them, but I just can't abide it, and um. For some reason, I might I bet my soap would kill the aphids.
0: Yeah, that you're talking about those things in a bottle where they're just supposed to wet your body or something and yeah. then you rub it all over yourself yeah. and then you rinse it off. Nah. Yeah. No, I like you a need... cake of soap a and a cake, flannel.
2: Yeah. And a flannel.
0: cast nice castile soap or something, yes. you know. Yes, the
2: good. old soap I'm fine on. Isn't yeah. that funny? Okay. So this watering, I want to get this straight. When I'm watering. I do it every day, and they won't – because I'm doing it every day, I'm just keeping – I just moisten the plant and have the ground damp on the surface, and that's enough because I'm doing it every day. It's not dry beneath the surface of the water.
0: No, because you – The surface of the soil. The underground water will be coming up, right? Yes. And after a period of time, it kind of runs out. But if it, if each day you're wetting the soil on the top, yeah. Well, you're not using the underground water so much because. No, no. So no, no. the whole thing Tell balances me. out.
2: Tell me, does it make a difference? Because I think of water coming in by rain, and the rain comes in and wets the whole plant. And I also understand that there are there, there's minerals in, in the rain that you don't necessarily get in your tap water. But the leaves are getting wet, and presumably some moisture goes in the leaves, and some comes up the roots. But if you have an irrigation system, like they have all those automatic ones that run along, they're just wetting the soil. Is that a problem?
0: Um, well, it depends. If you're talking about the irrigation system the, the, the drip feed, they just yeah. no. The only aspect of that, uh, and if you're in a glass house and you're not going to get rained on, um, that means the foliage itself will get dusty, dirty. Yeah. Um,
2: and the wee solar panel won't work so well.
0: Yeah, same Same difference. So what I do in my glass house um, with the non-chlorinated water, and particularly on a, hot, on a hot day, um, is I will water the floor to reduce the temperature of the heat because the evaporation, if you've got a concrete floor or asphalt or concrete blocks or or gravel even, right, and on a hot day you wet that and then the evaporation will cool the house. It's a, it's a lovely way to mm. drop your temperature down from above 30 down to a reasonable temperature because your plants in the glasshouse will stop growing once it gets up into 30s, they just sit there and go, Oh, it's so bloody hot, I'm in a sauna. Mm. Right? And and they stop growing until it cools down. So venting the glass house is most important. Like you have a, a top vent, but in the old days and glass houses, they had all these vents down low down the side walls, right? Because I've had owned old glass houses from the past. It usually concrete blocks up to about desk high, and then your glass was above that, right? And and along the bottom of those would be great big vents that you could open and close, right? So mm. you've got the the hot air rises going out through the roof vent and then sucking in low the cold air. It mm. doesn't work so well through a doorway because mm. your doorway's too high. You don't get that convention current flow. And it's, and a lot of people in a lot of glasshouses these days, of course, don't have that low side fence. So they do tend to get a lot hotter than they would do if they could vent the sides.
2: So watering every day, watering with a wand, you'd actually move quite quickly because like a fair bit of water comes out of a hose, you basically wet the plant, wet the soil, and move on to the next one.
0: Yeah, yeah, you just give everyone a little drink. They're probably getting about oh, 500 mils, something like that.
2: And that's um, enough.
0: Yeah, because you're doing it every day unless it rains and they're happy. Well, I um, think
2: for memory, a tap runs, a typical tap runs, what, six litres a minute. So a twelfth of a minute's nothing. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, what about plants? This is a bit self interest here, asking. Plants in PB forty bags. Yeah, is that a problem? No. Um, I got my little beech trees. I'll tell you the story. I haven't told you the story. I bought all these beech trees. I got a nursery with hundreds, mm, six hundred maybe beech trees growing. They're about head high now. I'm going to plant them out. Some a lot, most of them out soon. I've got them up about head high. I got them when they were quite small, just over a year ago, and then I discovered that the one thing they don't like, they're very hardy, interestingly, but they can't stand having their roots disturbed. Mm. That kills them. I, my expectation had been to plant them in the ground and then dig them up. But that's a big no-no, apparently. And so I planted them. I laid down weed map. I have them repotted and they're all in I think they're PB40s I got like big bags plenty of room any is that okay for my okay. plants and watering them
0: yeah yeah well you'd water in the top or you'd have a irrigation thing yeah drip feed to water them yeah um you you, you must remember that if they're in full sunlight and you've got a black pv bag uh, it's going to heat up soil. Yes. Right. So um, if it's very hot, you could start burning roots through there unless there's enough moisture.
2: Got it. To so keep it so, well wet.
0: Yeah. Um, but then then again, if the bags are all like, you know, you got, yeah, they're touching each other, Yeah, y- you've got the hive effect. So, got it. It's only the outer ones that yeah. are going to be sitting and drink sunlight. Yeah. 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 So tell me
2: this also. This is a funny one. We've got a long pipe, I'm going to say, hundred over 100 metres long, black polythene pipe running along the ground. Mm-hmm. On a hot day, the water's coming out of that pipe. Very hot, very hot. Should be not. My wife reckons not to use it during the day and at night when it's cool and the water is cooler. Is that a thing?
0: No, because that hot water is only in the length of the pipe that's exposed to the sun. Right,
2: once it's gone through.
0: So, so if you turn the tap on, and you go down to the water end where the water's coming out, and it's only a minute or two, and it'll be running cold. Okay. So then the damage, hot water onto foliage of plants, scalding hot water, is is a weed killer. Because if you boil your kettle and you go out, little young uh, plants growing in the cracks and the cobbles or something, and you pour boiling... My mother used to do that every week. Yeah, pour boiling water on them and kill them,
2: right? Now, I should tell you about my green fingers, because I have, I'm going to say, 800 beech trees growing. They've grown from sort of, oh, I don't know, chest height to over my head just in a year. I've only lost 17.
0: Oh, good. Yeah, excellent. So so you, you're you going to plant these out on your property. Yeah. And, and then you're going to get that special honey from the bees, which is a beech tree, um, what do they call it? Nelson honey have got it. It's it's beautiful stuff. It's black as. Uh, it comes from the beech trees down the coast there. Somewhere. Oh, I
2: should get a hive. Yeah.
0: and, and, and No, it, it's what it is. It's the insects, scale insects or whatever, feeding on the tree, peeing out honeydew. The bees collect the honeydew, and it's better than Manuka honey, and it's got more health oh. properties than Manuka honey but nobody wants to know about that because it comes from insect P. Wow. Beech tree, um, I'm trying to think of it. Uh, but oh, well, yeah. someone,
2: a listener may send that in. Remember, you can send us a text at 2057. Email us at inbox at I must look out for that. And of course, I've, I haven't done this. I've been so busy. I've got to get some beach titus and spread amongst my um, leaves. I think it's pretty good actually, uh, the microsia, because um it came from a very heavy beech tree nursery. And so I think they've got the 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 fellow in Invercargill who sold me these trees, whose name I forget, just a most amazing nursery. It was his grandfather, it's been the same business for something like 112 years same family, amazing right. isn't that amazing and, I just
0: remembered um, the name of that it's, it's is it? a Beech Tree Honeydew Honey Ah, yeah.
2: well you have that coffee in, I don't know Vietnam or somewhere that, was it a raccoon? Poos, eats the coffee beans and poos it out and it's supposed to be a very special coffee okay. Probably I, I, I tried it when I was there because it was a thing didn't taste any different than any other coffee I'd ever had. But the thought of it didn't exactly make my breakfast. <laughs> what other things? So we've got the water restrictions. And so in actual fact, the water restrictions shouldn't be a problem for you because as long as you're allowed to hand water your veggie and flower garden, you can do that every day and you get through because that's how you should be doing it.
0: And, and, of course, if you do get some decent rain, um, you can always put a mulch over the ground, and the mulch could be simply the lawn mown clippings, um sawdust, um, whatever you like, and you can put that to conserve moisture this time of the year. But the the thing with mulches is when you go into autumn proper and into winter, and you've got a lot of rain, it holds too much water in the ground, and any plants or trees that don't like wet feet, such as citrus trees, will die. You'll kill them. The roots will rot because the moisture can't get away. So mulches are very good in the summer, during the dry times to conserve water. But later on, when things start to come right with the moisture levels, you've got to scrape your mulches back. Otherwise, you can have massive problems later on. Most oh, important. Goodness.
2: Tell me, um, how do you figure you're watering out in winter then?
0: How do you what?
2: How do you figure out how much water to give plants in winter?
0: They don't need much at all. Like, if you have to water once a week, you'd be lucky. I um, see. You- you, your eyes, you can see when a plant has got its tongue out. The light leaves are drooping. It's it's mm. right. So once you learn how to see what the plant is telling you, the plant will tell you if it wants a drink, because it's dry, right? And the leaves will droop. What the drooping of the leaves and in a big leaf plant, so like a cabbage, the idea of the drooping leaves is the plant is trying to mulch the soil itself with its own leaves to prevent moisture loss, right? It's Amazing. retaining it. Yeah. So that's why. Now, here's another interesting one a lot of people don't realise. You have a tree, right? It could be a citrus tree. It could be anything. It doesn't matter what it is, right? And we have a thing called a drip line. Yep. Yep. You know what a drip line is? Yep. It's the circumference of the tree because when it rains, the leaves will move the water down the tree in a triangular formation sort of thing, To and then it will drop on the ground where the drip line is. The drip yeah. line is where the feeder roots are of trees yeah. and some plants. Right. Okay. Now, If you grow a small tree in a container, and that 100-litre container, the drip line is out beyond the container, right?
2: Of course.
0: So when it rains, it's not getting much of a drink because the leaves are shedding the water away of the growing media in the container. So containers have to be watered a bit more when you've got a a bigger plant like that. If you've got annuals or veggies or something small in there, of course, it's not going to be a problem. But Mm. for a citrus tree or whatever in a container, um, it doesn't get that. But the beauty of rain is it brings nitrogen down from the sky, right? So after a shower of rain or a day or two of rain, Everything in the garden comes to life. One, because, A, the plants have got a nice dose of nitrogen to make them grow. Secondly, the soil life, the worms, the microcyllium fungi, the microbes in the soil have got a chance to populate because you've been killing them with your bloody tap-chlorinated water and, and they have a chance to come away. And after a couple of days of rain, everything comes to life. It looks good, right? Mm. Then when it starts to dry out, once again, you get your chlorinated water out of the tap, pour it on, everything looks yuck. It goes backwards. Most important. One of the big problems at the moment is whitefly in glass houses.
2: I, just before you go on to that, I was just thinking, you're a bit like an analogue version of Twitter for gardening because you get phone calls from all over New Zealand so you're tapped into what is happening in gardens from one end of New Zealand to the other, aren't you?
0: Yeah, it is. I, I
2: mean, it's I, quite extraordinary when you, I think about it because people are ringing you with their problems.
0: True, yeah. And one of the interesting ones at the moment from a few people is, hello, where's all the insects? And, and they're saying bees, bumblebees, uh, pest insects, et cetera, et cetera. Not much. And the reason is, Iron Musk with his bloody satellites satellites. up in the sky, beaming 5G down, is affecting things. You reckon? Yes, definitely. It's basically a known fact. Um, And so some areas obviously affected more, maybe because there's more cell towers. I don't know. But insects is a problem. I think we talked about it a week or two ago. Yeah. And I jokingly
2: said it could be W. I really, I mean, here's the thing. When this 5G first became an issue and cell towers, I poo pooed it, right? Now I'm open to anything, right? But I didn't know that that youth, wow. Yeah. See, I, phew. Could be killing it, isn't it? That's, that's like silent spring stuff, right?
0: In Australia just recently, hundreds and hundreds of parakeets were dropping out of the sky dead. What killed them? Radiation. Where did the radiation come from? Uh-huh. Saltown. So
2: My goodness.
0: So thousands and thousands of sardines went up onto the shores of Philippines just recently. The people out there with buckets collecting them off the beach, millions of sardines. What caused it? Either sauna or radiation.
2: Do you use a fel- cell phone, Wally?
0: I have a cell phone, but I don't use it. Good Why idea. do I have a cell phone? Because sometimes when you go out to somewhere and they're going to send you a code, my God. Ah, oh, yes. And you need the code to be able to carry on and do the transaction or whatever. Uh, I was given uh, from my partner uh, one of these a Apple Eleven or because she's got an Apple Ninety Nine now or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> and and I, look, look I, I hate it. I hate it. I I try to do things on it, and the only advantage uh... of this is we have a shop next door, and we have a bell on the door, and when somebody presses a bell onto my a11 or Apple 11 or iPhone 11, uh, will come a message. Somebody's ringing the bell.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love it, Wally. Um, wow. Well, I wouldn't dismiss anything, right, because who knows?
0: Okay. Who knows? I can't remember it because I talk to so many people. But recently I wrote an article from Information from Over in England where a particular annual flower, has, they have discovered, has changed itself. So it is now self-fertile, in other words, within a few generations of that. And, yeah, it's changed the way it pollinates and it can self-pollinate. Before, it needed a bee or something to pollinate it, right? And so the scientists got some of the original uh, seeds of that variety and planted them alongside, and then they discovered that the bees would go to the originals but would not go anywhere near the modified ones. And they modified themselves because they knew or they are aware that the pollinators are disappearing. Isn't that incredible? Nature... Looks Nature, after itself.
2: It, it does. So you were saying before I rudely interrupted. Whitefly
0: glasshouses. Yep. I've got lots of people now this time of the year because they haven't got on top of them at the beginning. They now have like hundreds and hundreds of whitefly in their glasshouse, right? And, and it's most frustrating on the tomatoes, the cucumbers, etc. You go in there, you touch the plant, and you get a mouthful of white flies. There's just hundreds of them fly at you, right? So they say to me, what to do? And I said, well, the cat's out of the bag, the horse is bolted, you know. You, all you can do is try your best to get them under control. My suggestion to them, we have a what we call Wally's Super Pyrethrum. Now, this Pyrethrum, is so strong that you only put one drop, one mil, into two litres of water for normal strength. Now imagine that, just one little wee drop into two litres of water and you've got an effective uh, insecticide.
2: One down to 2,000.
0: Yeah, and somebody just uh, the other day rang me up and said, oh, we had these problems with our these beetles at nighttime feeding on our trees and we, we took your pyrethrum and we made it up. We went out there, we sprayed them, and they were dropping like flies. I said, that's good value, right? Now, so the pyrethrum is uh, deactivated by sunlight or UV, right? In fact, in the sunlight, after spraying, it's you're lucky if it's good for two hours. It's gone. It's completely ruined. So the only time you use pyrethrum ideally is at dusk, just before sunset. <clears throat> so the spray will last all night, and anything coming in contact with the spray during the night, where it's landed on leaves and so forth, get a dose, gets it into their body, affects the nervous system, and they drop off the perch. Right. So a combination of that, and along with our super neem tree oil. Mm-hmm. And you spray under and over the foliage. Now, with your tomato plants and with other plants too, the older leaves, break them off, take them off, right? It gets rid of a lot of insects by doing so. And don't just leave them laying around because they're covered in insects probably. Put them in a plastic bag and seal it so that they'll die in the plastic bag. So do that. <clears throat> and then you've got less plants to spray. And they're much easier to spray. You spray up under the foliage and over the foliage, right? At dusk, then about two or three days later, or five days later, another spray. You will get control at the end of the season coming up when the tomato plants have done their best and are finished for the season. At that point of time, what you do is you leave them in the house and you burn sulphur powder in the house to fumigate the whole thing. You do not take the plants outside. If you take the plants outside first, all you're doing is taking the insects outside. Waste of
2: time. where they are.
0: Yeah, leave them there, You zap them there.
2: And both of those products are perfectly natural.
0: Yeah, yeah. Burning the sulphur is a little bit dangerous. You don't want to stay in the house because you'll be a dead aphid yourself. Okay. That's for sure. But the fumes of it, yeah, makes it difficult to breathe. But it does clean up. You, you can do it with plants that are there, but some plants will be affected and die. Some plants will recover. I've, I've tried different varieties of tomato plants, and some survive it. After the fumes are finished and you open up the house and vent it, um, if you do it while plants are there, You can give the plants a light watering over Mm. the foliage to wash Mm. out the sulphur. Any sulphur-sensitive plants, they'll die for sure. So doing that, um, but the key to the whole thing, and I'm amazed, my little glass house, one of my glass houses, I've got two, um, I decided this season I will grow just tomatoes in one house, and I've got a jungle in there, literally a jungle. But a lady told me from up north that she had taken our cat repellent, which is naphthalene, and she had made little bags. Uh, no, she used tea bags. Old used tea bags. She'd taken the tea leaves out. She put the naphthalene flakes inside the tea bags and then stapled them up and hung them in her fruit tree, and she didn't have any graver moth problems because the smell of the naphylene disguised the smell of the tree and the fruit, and so the graver moth couldn't find them, right? And I was like, brilliant. So I did the same in my glass house, not with tea bags, with no drink tea, but I went to the $2 shop and got those little gauze bags, little gift mm-hmm. bags things, mm-hmm. stuck naphylene in them, hung them up from the ceiling in the house. No white fly, not a skerrick, except mm-hmm. the… And I've hung the yellow sticky pads in there to check. And I've caught the odd white fly, But I can shake my plants. Not a, not a thing. The smell has disguised it.
2: Isn't it amazing? After all these years, you're still learning. Yeah. And learning from your customers.
0: Yes. Yeah. They come up with some brilliant things at times.
2: How interesting. Now, I had listeners love your show, Wally. Love your ideas. I had a listener, not so much. They had a question about for Wally. A little bit upset, so I thought I'd give you an opportunity to explain yourself, Wally. This person has said, oh my goodness, Wally, glycophosphate, Roundup, using it, how could that be? And to be fair, I did think to myself, I think Wally uses it very sparingly and only in certain places. Tell us about your philosophy and practice of using Roundup.
0: The last time I used Roundup would be about 25 years ago. Oh, really? We talked about it on air, and what I was saying, and somebody didn't listen correctly.
2: No, I'm thinking that too.
0: For the people that still like to use Roundup or herbicides, if they were to add Rain guard, one mil per litre of spray, to the Roundup or herbicide, they will get a 50% better kill than not doing that. Hence, they can reduce the amount of Roundup they use, which is normally 10 mils per litre, down to 5 mils per litre, bit of rain guard, and still have a better kill than they would have done at 10 mils on its own. Right? That's what the conversation was about. Not that I do it, but for people that still do it and like to use Roundup or whatever because it's a quick, way of doing weeds.
2: Why don't you use
0: Roundup? Why don't I? Well, mm-hmm. what I discovered was when I did use it, uh, not only did it make me feel a bit queasy afterwards and I'd have to have a shower and so forth, but my Sharpe dogs that I had at the time, they were having skin problems. And I went to a specialist and he checked them out and he said, do you use Roundup? I said, how do you know? He said, it's because the skin problems are caused by glyphosate on your dogs. They're walking through the weeds that you've killed. Really? Okay. So that that turned me off. And and another one was too, about the same time, I I had nurseries and garden centres in those days, and I remember spraying Roundup um, in one of my tunnel houses. And next time I went out there, there's a bloody dead hedgehog. I'd hit a hedgehog. Or he'd eaten some of the weeds or something. It were dying. But I felt so sorry for this poor little hedgehog. And so, once again, um, not a good thing to use, that's for sure. We have ammonium sulfamate, which is safe to use, more expensive, but um, it can be used if you want to spray weeds safely.
2: Mm. So what was it like? what's it like as a lifestyle and business having a nursery?
0: So, so they again. What's
2: it like when you had the nurseries, right? What was that like as a lifestyle and as a job? Did you enjoy having the nurseries or was it just?
0: Um, I work seven days a week still because it became a habit. But the problem was having nurseries, garden centres. Even on Christmas Day, you were down there watering right? So you'd be four or five hours down there um, watering everything to keep it alive because you're in the middle of summer Um, so your Christmas day was shot Uh, you couldn't sit back and relax and forget about it, unless it was raining of course, and that was a godsend on a Christmas day Um,
2: (laughs) You're the only guy praying for rain Christmas day
0: and (laughs) yeah. And then again, too, was, was having a garden centre shop. Um, the most frustrating is I had one or two customers who always knew that i closed at 5 o'clock. So they'd come in at 5 to 5 and spend the next half hour wandering around the garden centre uh, before they might just buy a small little item. And you'd be there at 530 <laughs> waiting for them <laughs> to, um, to leave, my God. Um, it, I, I love the growing of the plants. Like, we used to grow thousands and thousands of seedlings and stuff like that, and I, I could sit there all day pricking out seeds and sowing seeds and, and putting them into punnets or whatever or growing them into bags. Um, I, that part I loved. Um, dealing with people was great. Um, I, I, I had a situation that I had three tools at the front counter and I would operate all three tools on, on a, on a fairly busy day sometimes, unless I had staff available to do, to help. And I'd have lines of people, right? And, and you know what it's like in a supermarket if you're in the line of people,
2: Yeah,
0: it's bored. How's your father? right? But no, all the people would be happy. Why? Because each customer I served, I would explain to them about the plant, how to look after it, what, how to use that product, and they were all listening. They were all going, big ears, oh! And, and so by the time they got up to, to be served later and, and get their information, they were already happy that they, they weren't that great. chuffed Isn't off. It?
2: Isn't that great? I remember you learning to love gardening when you're a young boy. And I've recently had experience of my two littleies growing strawberries. Right. And they went off to the market and came back and wanted to buy a strawberry plant for $5.50, I think it was. And I said, sure. And my little girl, whenever she gets a yes, she always tries to double down. And she says, oh, well, I'll get one for my little brother too. Right. And I thought, no, I'm not playing this game because then it'll go on and on. We'll be going getting one for everyone. So I said, no, no, just one. So they went off. And the dear man that they bought off, my son says he's clearly going to go to heaven because he's such a nice man, gave gave him a strawberry plant so they could have one each. Right. So they've potted them out, and they're so excited, and they're watering them. And it made me recall where New World, I think it was, had a promotion. They have a promotion. They've had, ran it for two years, I know of, where you'd get little plants, little seeds um, as a sort of loyalty thing as shopping at New World. I normally shop at Peck and Save, but I went to New World for these plants. Oh, my goodness. The kids love, kids love planting and growing things,
0: don't they? Yeah. Yeah, they do.
2: We have to encourage that. So anyone listening, if you've got grandkids or neighbours' kids or your own kids, my goodness, give them a packet of seeds and they'll just have a – it's wonderful to watch kids growing stuff, the joy they get when they pop through.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah, Um, because it's natural for them. Yes. They haven't become so sophisticated and so forth by being older that it becomes uh, – yeah. Because it's
2: thousands and thousands of years in us to grow things. It's what makes us human. Tell me, what else you are picking up from around New Zealand as issues that are happening, Wally?
0: Um, Let's see. That's interesting. My mind's a blank, my God. Um, Oh. Pollination, pollination of um, pumpkins, zucchinis and so forth, hand pollinate, most important. Oh um leaf hoppers and stink bugs another two insects which people are having problems with at the moment this time of the year of course with the temperatures uh as they are um these insect pests are breeding like rattlesnakes so there's heaps of them right and you've got to get on top of them uh once again watering by hand you pick up the problems when they are early in the stage. You get out there later in the day, uh, just before sunset, with your pyrethrum, super pyrethrum, and super neem oil made up. Now, the interesting thing with that too, in a trigger sprayer. I love tr- little trigger sprayers because they're so handy to use. Is you can you
2: mean a have- trigger spray on the end of a hose?
0: No, no trigger sprayer that you t- pull the container. Through- yeah, it's a one yeah. liter trigger sprayer.
2: I use for spraying, yeah, weeds and weeds and
0: weeds insects. or yeah. insects or whatever. You can make it up, and if you don't use it all, ideally, you take it out of the sprayer because neem oil can clog up, right? So you put it into another container safely, and then you rinse some water through your trigger sprayer and spray it so it's clear, and then. The stuff you haven't used should be in a dark cupboard, mm. right? With a marked neem oil and pyrethrum. So next time you want to use some, you just take that bottle, pour it back in your trigger sprayer, and go out and do damage. Um,
2: you can't leave it in your trigger sprayer.
0: You can, but the chances are, if it's cooler or gets colder, the neem oil will solidify. And your trigger sprayer won't work. Okay, So it's best – and that's another another thing. A lot of people don't do the right thing at the end of spraying, whether it be – if they have herbicide, of course, they they should have a sprayer marked herbicide. Nothing else goes in there. So that's okay. But if you're using rain guard or vapor guard or oils or whatever, insecticides, fungicides, then – When you finish spraying, if you haven't used it all up, you either decant it to use some other time, you put a good amount of water into your tank, your sprayer, give it a good shake, tip that water out, then put some more clean water into the sprayer, and then pump it up and squirt and adjust your nozzle till it's a jet, and you jet it out. Now, that will clean all the filters, all the jets, Mm. through your sprayer. If Mm. you don't do that, next time you come to use your sprayer, hello, you've got a tank full of stuff to go, but it won't pump out, nothing happens. What do you do? Frustration. Frustration. Um,
2: Now, before you go, this might be too basic, but you said, oh, hand pollinate your zucchinis and your cucumbers and your pumpkins. Yes. How do you do that?
0: Okay. If you look at a zucchini or a pumpkin, you'll see there's two different types of flowers. One has got the embryo fruit behind the petals, and one hasn't. The one that hasn't has got a stamen that's like a um, a male stamen. Yes. <laughs> I got it. You got it yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, what you simply Think do for
2: yourself, Wally.
0: The female flower will have an ovary, and that's what it's called an ovary in the center with the fruit behind at the base of the petals. So I take, pluck a male flower off, remove the petals so the stamen is prominent, and then I just poke that into the female flower ovary and and touch that, and some of the pollen goes onto that. Okay. Self pollinated, or it's pollinated at that. The only thing is, of course, you've got to be careful the neighbours don't see you doing this in the garden because if they're woke, they'll, they'll be upset.
2: They'll call the police. Tell me, if you don't do that, will you not get any pumpkins?
0: No, unless a bee or bumblebee or something as a pollinator moves the pollen from the male to the female, what will happen is your little pumpkin will actually grow and you think, oh, that's good, that's nice, it's growing, and next thing it goes all rotten.
2: My goodness. Yeah. So um, why do you need to hand-pollinate pumpkins? Is this because we've bred them for our gardens, and as part of the process of breeding them, we haven't made them attractive to bees or something? Because like other things just pollinate naturally.
0: Um. Yeah, they should do. But if there's no bumblebees or bees or anything oh, that that.
2: Elon Musk and he's said. Yeah.
0: yeah. Oh. oh remember some time ago we talked about our new topper nutrient, which you're going to use on um stone fruit trees for curly leaf? Yep. Wow, have I had some comments back? Mm. People that have used it have like myself found a little bit of curly lead, but nothing like normal, right? But the biggie news is one or two people, and one guy in particular, his um, plum tree suffers extremely badly from brown rot. Brown rot is when the fruit is just about mature and they rot on the tree. And it's devastating. It's a hell of a disease. He, he had used the copper nutrient on his tree. And he said, most of the plums are clean this year. I'm e- eating plums. And then another guy, he used it on his stone fruit tree, and his, this is for his pears and, sorry, his peaches and his nectarines. He said, my God, the fruit is so big. I said, what do you mean it's big? He said, some of the fruit is as big as a baseball. A baseball. He said, it's a bloody copper nutrient. And that's a fact. It increases the photosynthesizing sensing, of the tree, increases the health of the tree. The tree is better, and we're getting bigger fruit.
2: So there oh, I mean, we go. What
0: if a you wonderful. spray that on your tomato plants and so forth, you get bigger tomatoes, um, less chance of a blight. It could be used on roses, oh, everywhere.
2: Copper sulphate solution.
0: No, no, it's a copper nutrient.
2: It's, copper nutrient.
0: Yeah, what is copper nutrient.
2: There you go. Now, how do we get a hold of you, Wally? 0800
0: 466 464. It's the phone number. It's 0800 466 464. The mail order website is the same, but it's www.0800 466 464.co.nz And then I phone you. People complain. They said I can't pay for it online. And I said, no, you're not allowed to. They why? Because I want to talk to you. Oh! Why do you do that? Because it's called service. Oh, really?
2: Isn't that great? Yeah. Where service. would that happen? Where would that happen? Now, now you now you go to some place. I recently stayed in a hotel and they billed me twice. The palaver that I had to go through, big hotel chain all around the world, Um, $149 or something, double billed. What I had to go through to only pay once for one night And the people I had to deal with took forever. Not just someone you could email, not just someone you could phone, back and forth, back, oh, I'll get onto it, oh, I'll check that, oh. And you go to Wally, he rings you back. That's amazing. Wally, always wonderful to talk. That's our Professor Gardening Guru, Wally Richards. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're always talking nowadays a lot about real food. Well, to have real food, you've got to be real gardening. And if you're going to be real gardening, there's no better person to hear from and learn from than Molly Richards. And I've got to tell you, his magic botanic liquid, it's a lifesaver where I live. It does the business. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can send me a text, 2057. Email me inbox at radleycheck.radio.
0: You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster.
2: You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057, email me inbox at rallycheck.radio, and, oh, one of our favourites, we've got Tane Webster, Politics Explained. Tane, good morning.
4: Good morning, Rodney. How's it going?
2: Look, never better, funnily enough. Goodness knows why, but I always feel that way. I always feel so blessed, and um, I can't believe how well things go. I mean, we sort of blunder through the show, and we get such great guests at works, and we've got lovely uh, listeners, and I have to say they're very forgiving, and they enjoy the show, and they enjoy you. They enjoy Politics Explained.
4: Yep, yep. So this, this week I thought we'd go uh, do some politics, but also some kind of more parliamentary education as well. Yes. And so the the, the the main question is what are the most powerful positions in or outside of Cabinet, kind of from the perspective of RCR listeners and, and the issues that they care about or that we care about. But before that, I thought it would be important to recap what is the difference between being inside or outside of Cabinet?
2: Mm-hmm cabinet is everything so it's a very it's a very peculiar system in a sense and even MPs don't grasp it and you suddenly grasp it when you become a cabinet minister because you're still an MP but you're a cabinet minister and your whole world and your whole job changes so parliament is there to pass laws and hold the government to account, right? So in order to pass a law, it has to go through Parliament and the government has to come to Parliament and explain what it's up to, get its budget passed, which is all the money it's going to spend, and get asked questions. So it's parliamentary scrutiny that holds our government to account, and then you say, well, what is the government? Well, when I'm referring to government in this sense, I'm not referring to all the bureaucrats and uh, departments. I'm referring to cabinet. So you go from being an MP to becoming a cabinet minister and part of the government. You are the government. It's cabinet that makes all the government decisions not Parliament. And so you still sit in Parliament, but you're a minister making real decisions. A good way to think of it would be that a parliamentarian really asks questions and votes, but a Cabinet minister makes government decisions with Cabinet. So the difference is huge. An MP has almost no responsibility and a minister is loaded up with responsibility because you're responsible for all the policies to do with your portfolios and you're responsible for all the government departments that are in your purview. So it's a completely different job uh, and it requires a completely different mindset and a completely different set of skills uh, because you end up sort of managing departments. Uh, On the upside, it's where the power is, and on the upside, you get a huge amount of support. I'm not just talking about the fact that you get a car and a driver to drive you around. You get a huge amount of support in terms of information, um policy papers being prepared because there's a whole department
4: they get more staff as well right
2: you get more staff in your office and you get departmental staff in your office you have a big office i think i had like 12 staff say in my my office some of them are from the departments who were liaising between my office and the departments and then some of them were my staff who were basically who I trusted and who worked for me, not the department. And they were keeping an eye on the department, if you know what I mean. So it's a very, very complicated, exciting position, incredibly exciting, but quite different to being an MP. And it's quite tough because I was in a small party and my MPs used to count how many hours I spent in Parliament and say, oh, look, you've really got to do more nights. And you're sort of looking at them and you think, do you have any idea what I have to do? You know, because you're still having. I, I'd have departmental meetings at eleven o'clock at night, and that at seven in the morning.
4: So, one thing uh, that I personally found a little bit confusing that we talked about before we, we we've started here, but it's worth the listeners hearing as well, is if you go on the Department of what is the DPMC stand for again, um, Prime Minister and Cabinet. Department
2: Cab- of Prime Minister and Cabinet.
4: Yeah, on their website, if you look up the the Cabinet page it's got for example let's look at uh, act so we know they have 11 mps in total the way it's broken down on this makes it kind of look like there's basically f- four types of mps because you have that cabinet ministers there's three of which david brooke nicole uh, and then outside of cabinet which i'm not really sure what that one means you, it only lists andrew hoggard and karen sure and then it's got one at parliamentary undersecretary simon court so there's those three categories there but then we know there's another six mps that are not listed what what, what title do they fall under that, that that means they're not listed on this page
2: they're mps and of course again this is this is another feature of it so they're MPs like they were MPs before the... Well, you know, they're they're just MPs. They're government MPs, so they're, so they're obligated uh, to vote for the government. Of course, they don't have to. They can step outside if they want to, but they'd come under trouble with their own party. So they're obligated to vote with their party um, unless they get leave to vote for someone else. But that's what they do. They're MPs. And you remind me, because, again, when you become uh, a Minister or a Cabinet Minister or a Minister outside Cabinet, you come under an entirely different um, setup, And so there's an organisation called the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and they look after Cabinet, and that's their list, you see. But you still are an MP and you still have obligations. So a good example would be you declare you now have to declare a, uh, your financial what is it your financial interests in parliament when I Fictionary interests. Fictionary interests when i was first an mp mps didn't have to but they now do but when you become a cabinet minister you also have to declare them uh, but it's a different form and it's a much more serious thing because you're involved in making decisions of spending money you know, MPs just vote on a budget. They don't make a decision that um, how money will actually get spent. And so you're in a you're in you're in a double. You have a double responsibility: one to Parliament as an MP, and one to the to the cabinet. And there's another strange thing that's particularly strange uh, when it becomes uh, MMP, and you have a coalition government. Because cabinet meets separate to parliament. So you have cabinet meetings, and then you have cabinet committee meetings, and then you have parliament. And the cabinet meetings are chaired by the prime minister, and if he or she ain't there, they're chaired by the deputy prime minister. And they have an order of business and everything that you're doing as a minister gets put through Cabinet. So you prepare a paper and you say, look, I'm proposing to do this or I am proposing to have this legislation uh, prepared and uh, you put it in to get the okay from Cabinet each step of the way. And each of the ministers will be getting reports on your work like say you've got a piece of legislation, I might have a piece of legislation to do with local government uh, and the transport ministry will prepare a paper for the Minister of Transport on what it means for transport so he or she can have their say on it. And so uh, that's how that works. And again, I make the point that's completely separate to Parliament. And when you have a cabinet committee meeting they're very exciting because a bit like parliamentary select committees they're the workhorse where you might have only three or four ministers meeting to cover off economic matters or to cover off regulatory matters you know i can't remember all the different committees there are and they get officials in and interrogate officials and there are no cameras there's no scrutiny it's all done in secret cabinet is in secret um And when you're in Cabinet, you're bound by what's called the Cabinet Manual, and that means that um, you don't discuss the matters of Cabinet outside Cabinet. And that's to allow non-political discussion, if you can picture that. Like, you need to be able to speak freely in Cabinet about what your concerns are. If your concerns were going to be reported in the paper the next day, you'd probably keep your mouth shut or you'd feel inhibited or you'd put on a performance, you know, for the paper. But um, within Cabinet, uh, you can speak freely and say, look, I have a serious, serious concern about this and here's why. And it might be a foolish thing, but it gets explained to you and you say, okay, I've got this now. So that's how Cabinet works. And there's another thing that's called Cabinet Collective Responsibility that when you're in cabinet, you can argue and disagree and then you basically vote. You actually don't vote. I've never seen a cabinet vote. I think I have maybe a few times when it's tight. But typically, you know, you get agreement and it's close enough and the ones that are in the minority know that they're not going to win and the chairman, be the prime minister or the deputy prime minister, they can just say, okay, we're doing this. You're bound by that. You can't say, I don't agree with that decision publicly. When you're in public, you're a member of the cabinet, and you say, yes, no cabinet decided this. You can't say you disagreed with it, because that would, again, uh, be a divided government. Now, there's a latitude introduced with MMP, because you can have things like, we agree to disagree. And uh, so there has to be a latitude for ACT and for New Zealand First. Uh, but the Prime Minister has to really give it to them. Um, So if you say, look, Prime Minister, this is so against Act Party policy, we're going to have to disagree with you on this, and we're going to say so publicly. And he will basically give you permission to disagree publicly. I can't imagine Helen Clark saying that, but I used to do that to John Key and say, look, there's no way we can agree to this Maori, special treatment for Maori, for example. We would never agree to anything like that, and we'd agree to disagree. And he wouldn't be blindsided because we would have told him exactly what we were going to say. And so um, you'd get away from that collective responsibility. Uh, Also, too, there's an interesting feature of the Cabinet rules, is that the only referee... This gets confusing for journalists and the public. The only referee for whether a rule has been broken is the prime minister. Hmm. So um, that's been Helen Clark famously said that by definition, she couldn't breach cabinet rules because she leaked cabinet decisions once or twice. And when she's pulled up on it, she said, but she couldn't leak them because by definition, she'd have to pot herself. But it also means that you can have some pretty wayward ministers who clearly are breaking cabinet rules but the prime minister doesn't enforce it and says no they haven't broken the rule i've looked into that and they haven't broken it. it's a prime minister because the political position you know you can't have a judge or a, a third party coming in because ultimately we elect our government that's a point of cabinet yeah. um yeah ministers inside cabinet and ministers outside cabinet are very interesting If you're a minister inside cabinet, of which I've never been, I was only a minister outside cabinet, which I very much appreciated, although I got paid a lot less money. I much more appreciated being a minister outside cabinet. Because if you're a minister inside cabinet, you sort of go to cabinet all the time. You're a permanent member of the cabinet. And it gets pretty tedious. If you're a minister outside cabinet, you only go to cabinet when you're discussing your item of business or a government's item of business that affects your portfolios. So you'll go along to quite a few cabinet meetings, but you might only pop in for half an hour and pop out, which suited me enormously.
4: And you're bound by the rules for the time you're there?
2: Yes. And because you're not there the rest of the time, you can't be accused of releasing a secret because you weren't there. And I quite like that too. You know what I mean? Because... It can get nasty, and people say, oh, well, he licked that. You say, no.
4: Call it the, uh, you know, I don't know if this is going to be funny or not, but the, the Cabinet of Secrets, like the old Harry Potterman Chamber yeah. of Secrets.
2: Yeah. No, it is Cabinet of Secrets. And, I mean, you can always get accused of, oh, you're the guy that licked, and you say, how could I be? I wasn't there. So I quite like that. But when there were um, tragedies or tough stuff, for example, after the Christchurch earthquake, uh, Cabinet met a lot, and it met mm. irregularly. And was making a lot of decisions, and everyone would just turn up because it was literally um, a government flying by the seat of its pants to deal with a tough situation. Mm. And you have officials; you can have officials in the, in the cabinet. Um, yes, it's it's um, it's pretty weird when you walk into cabinet the first time, take a seat, because that's where all the power
4: so if we just uh look back at the page link which i will i will put in the show in the show notes so if we're just going with the act example you've got uh david brooke and nicole they have uh they are the act ministers that are in cabinet then you have andrew hoggard karen shaw act ministers outside cabinet so they have portfolios but For whatever reason, they haven't been decided to be one of the few that can be in Cabinet because you can only have a limited number. And then a next step down, you've got Simon Court, who's a parliamentary undersecretary to the Minister of Infrastructure and to the Minister responsible for RMA reform. And then the other six MPs would be just regular MPs without portfolios. Is is that...?
2: That's right. They're just MPs like opposition MPs, and they come under parliamentary services, not ministerial services right and they don't Mm -hmm. come under the department of prime minister and cabinet it sounds crazy doesn't it but there you go
4: i think the key distinction that maybe new people will get gain from this uh, from hearing this episode is is the it's the element of who has portfolios and who doesn't that's why there's two categories of of in or outside of cabinet because they all have portfolios and then the others that are not even listed there don't have portfolios yeah and if you
2: look at the uh if you look at the Minister's outside Cabinet, um, it's Andrew Hoggart, and he has biosecurity and food safety. You know, that's not a thing that is going to come up at every Cabinet meeting. Um, mm. And Karen mm. Chaw has got Minister for Children and Prevention of Family and Sexual Violence. It's not a thing that comes up uh, every every on, on every decision. Yeah. But when you go to D- David Seymour, he's Minister for Regulation, and that's gonna be it. every time something gets discussed, he'll have an interest in it. Um and then Brooke Van Velden is internal affairs and workplace relations. And Nicole McKee's interesting. She's Minister for Courts and she's in cabinet. She could be out of cabinet, but she's in cabinet.
4: But oh, but is uh you so you think that one's not quite No,
2: but they've obviously put her in. But you could easily have the Minister for Courts not in cabinet. But you couldn't have, say, um, you know, well, you could have, I suppose, but that's how they've done it. An associate minister is interesting mm. because they have a lot of associate ministers, particularly with MNP. And you become an associate minister, for example, I was an associate minister of education, and you're given um a particular area to work on. So mine was. It was special needs, what we know as special needs, but it had another name, and I so loved that job. And I had a job also in public-private partnerships for building schools, and so I was involved in you know, overseeing the building of schools, the political oversight. Now, when you are associate minister, you've basically got the latitude that your minister allows you to have, so they could stomp all over you and not let you make any decisions or they could be very relaxed and in your area let, let you make lots of decisions so um that that's there's a big difference between being minister which is the person total charge and then um you could be the associate minister and you've got a wee chink and that's your little area and uh, the minister could actually say, look, I don't want you to do that, and you don't even get it to Cabinet, right? So that's another distinction. There's also another funny thing, because government has grown like topsy. And you'll see that Brooke Van Velden is Minister for Internal Affairs. Now, Internal Affairs ex- has existed forever. Michael Bassett did a book on it, in its history. And... It just becomes a glad bag of all the different things that governments do and they all get stuck into internal affairs. It'll be doing birth, death, and certificates. When I was there, it was doing the library system, the, the National Library. Whole collection of hot pots of things. It was also doing local government. Right? So there's a Minister of Internal Affairs and you think, oh, what's that about? Right? But... The poor chief executive, when I was there, reported to 14 different ministers. Wow. Because there was someone in charge of local government, me. There was someone in charge of the library. There was someone, to, you know, someone was in charge of birth, deaths, and certificates. And so you don't necessarily get that picture. There are departments that are sort of have lots of ministers to report to because they've sort of got a lot of different roles that have all been put in the one department. Very, very funny. In terms of power, obviously the big power is with the Prime Minister because he or she speaks for the entire cabinet and they can stop anything or they could start anything. But in a funny way, they have more a role of keeping the cabinet going And so they've got to be very mindful of keeping their colleagues all happy and the coalition partners all happy. And so they're sort of like a chairman of the board almost. You know, they're not just, uh, they can't be too dictatorial. Um, And the real powerhouse is the Minister of Finance Mm. Mm. because the Minister of Finance controls the money and all of government turns on money and um you can do all you like and have all the great ideas you like but if the minister of finance doesn't fund it it ain't going to happen and so the minister of finance has an overview of every department every policy every portfolio every minister and has advice on it through treasury and the departments themselves have to account to Treasury because it has an audit role. And that Minister of Finance is going yes or no. And you'll go cap in hand to the Minister of Finance because you'll say, look, I've got a special needs school that has got leaky ruse, and the kids are sitting there getting drenched and we need money,
4: mm.
2: Right. So um, I've seen ministers come out of the Minister of Finance's office crying because he said no. So that's where the power is in the machinery of government. It's with the Minister of Finance. And then a Prime Minister will have what they call an inner cabinet, which is trusted colleagues.
4: A secret, a secret level at the next level up.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a bunch of um, trusted colleagues who will have senior positions in Cabinet and have a capacity to understand public policy and politics and understand how things work. And they will meet through the week and ahead of Cabinet and decide things. outside a cabinet now it's not official but it sort of works because uh the prime minister knows where the minister of finance the minister of transport say and two other senior colleagues are, on, are going to be on an issue and so there's a pre-cabinet type setup all prime ministers do this because when you turn up to cabinet you don't want to be blindsided and not know what your senior trusted lieutenants are thinking And if the senior and trusted lieutenants think that this is okay, it'll happen. If they think it's not okay, it won't. So there's wheels within wheels, politics within politics. Um, But that's how it works. Undersecretary, in my entire time in Parliament, 15 years, I don't believe there ever was an undersecretary. Could have been. But that's just a made-up job that you you kick to someone and they, they have a little bit of responsibility, but they don't attend Cabinet unless they're called in.
4: Right. Well, I think we'll have to leave the part two for, for next week, which was more about uh, who should uh, we at RCR and our listeners particularly be keeping an eye on in terms of the, the issues we care about. So but we, we've done the recap well and, and educated people on the – those structures, so I think that was really helpful.
2: Well, I always worry about educator. I never, you know, we're talking about it and, and um, people might know it better than me. But um, it is, it's a very, it's, you know, in fact, I just scratched my head to think back to how it all works, but it's, a, um, it's an amazing system. And of course, it evolved over hundreds and hundreds of years. Our parliamentary system is amazing and the cabinet system is amazing and it works incredibly well, in a sense. Um, to hold government to account, it doesn't work well because government's become so bloated and so big and so heinous, but um when you compare it to the alternative of a despotic king um and that's what our parliament grew out of, and it's got this rich heritage of which we are here to, and we're very lucky. I think the American system is a very good system too um if you're going to have government, it's a good system to have. But our system is um, very sophisticated, and it sort of works in a funny roundabout way. Of course, I would have cabinet and parliament and government the sort of size of my bathroom, because I'm a little government guy. And once I was in my bathroom, I'd, I'd lock the door and not let them out, because I'm not a fan of government. But the system itself is quite amazing. It's sort of like the English language or the common law. It's a system that's grown over hundreds of years and there's bits of it that seem arcane and pointless, but then you realise that there are points of it that you'd think they were arcane and useless, but they serve a purpose. I always remember talking to the clerk of the house, Mr. David McGee, who is widely regarded as authoritative in the Commonwealth. Lovely, lovely man. Very accomplished at standing orders. Wrote the textbook. Wrote the book on parliamentary procedure. And I said, oh, what are these standing orders for? These were the rules for parliament. And he looked at me with a wry smile. He had this dry humour. He was an Englishman. He said, oh, the rules are designed to stop politicians talking. (laughs) 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 And it's true. You know, it's designed to keep everything moving and moving along because, you know, politicians would talk forever if you gave them the chance like I'm doing now. There we go. That was Tane Webster. Uh, Politics explained. We covered off cabinet associate ministers and ministers outside cabinet, and we covered off under secretaries of which I know nothing about. And um, it is—it's a—it's an amazing system, and it's hard for people to appreciate the difference between being a cabinet minister and an MP and the responsibility it entails, because you're on the inside of government decision making and so there's a potential to give off confidential information and for people to make a lot of money Mm. actually things like that so you have to be very careful you're on Rally Check Radio Real Talk with Rodney Hyde send us a text 2057 email me inbox at rallycheck.radio thank you for listening you're on Rally Check Radio it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde oh my favourite time the mailbag gonna have a look digging around in here oh Amanda Croft. Yay. Love Vita Austin. Her work is amazing. So excited and a beautiful love heart. This is the water crystals. That was exciting. Donna, uh, amazing interview. Loved this. Watch the water drop. Try sounds. The shapes are amazing. A lot of people are into this. Morning, Rodney. I heard of this years ago on the DVD about vibrations. Good words to the water, beautiful crystals. Awful words to water, distorted crystals. Amazing. My takeaway is about how we speak to our children. We really can harm them with our words, Joe. Oh, isn't that true? And I get so upset when I sort of get frustrated with the children and speak sharply to them. always oh, so feel so bad because little kids are so wonderful. Hi Rodney, the interview with Vida Austin was super cool, so uplifting, inspirational and intriguing, I was totally glued in throughout the interview, how lovely, go God the creator, powerful stuff, beautiful, love your song choices by the way. So pleased that Rodney had Vida Austin on today, I have suggested her as a guest a while back for Up Your Brave, I'm sure many of the hosts would get a lot out of her, her blend of art, science and spirituality gives her many subjects to discuss, her website, Her website is full of great images, videos, and podcasts. People really need to see what images are created to appreciate how amazing this work is. Oh, and then we had Phyllis Titchenen, Western A. Price. Amazing interview, Rodney. My husband, after 18 months of chronic inflammation, following four dental implants, is now following the root cause protocol, which is exactly what she's talking about, especially organic eggs and beef liver. As am I, Rosa. Oh, Rosa, well, let us know how you get on. Please do. Hi, Rodney, read Butter. Dr. Guy Hutchard's latest research shows Butter is separated out into all sorts of components. I know, I read this, I got so upset. And it's not whole anymore, is it still good for us, please? What would Phyllis say? Mark, we're going to ask Phyllis, we're going to get her to look into this. Hi, Rodney, I listened to most of the conversation with the lady who talked about Western A. Price, but life got in the way, so missed a few minutes here and there. Very informative and sounds like common sense. It is a tragedy that we have been brainwashed by big pharma, grain and cereal growers, sugar advocates and successive governments. Governments must be included in this, as they are the people that set the standard for food and pharmaceuticals as safe and useful. Indeed. I believe that so many positions of power have taken backhanders and led the country astray for profit and personal gain. There seem to be so many scams that have taken place for financial gain it is ridiculous. Look at these last five or six years. I oh, agree. Anyone who's not been living under a rock and can think critically is able to join the dots. Our fearless leader, Jacinda Jackbert. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one. <laughs> Jacinda jackpot <Jepard. laughs> Gosh, that captures it, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> sorry, i got to read more. Oh, I can't. have to give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> a faithless leader. Jacinta Jackboot, who ran out of gas and couldn't run the country. Is front and center inconning the people of New Zealand and leaving with a fistful of dollars. Jacinta Jackboot. Oh dear. Oh thanks. Um Anyway, I was wondering if you could confirm a snippet. I heard on your show a while back, a person said, if you look at the food you're eating and you know that your grandmother wouldn't know what it is, then don't eat it. It sounds like common sense to me and would love to hear from that person again. Yes, I think that is true. Um, the other one is if it comes in a box, and the other one is to shop around the edges of the supermarket, not the middle. Great show again, Rodders. Cheers, Mike from Foxton. Hi, Rodney. Excellent thought-provoking discussion as always. Thank you, Peter. Hi, it was very interesting listening to Phyllis on Real Talk. Is there any chance of finding out her thoughts on using coconut oil? Thanks, Anthony. I uh, we'll put that to her. Rodney Hyde talked about drinking fresh milk today. A guy who owns a company called Happy Cows delivers from the farm to the store, and he does this from farmers who keep the cows happy. By leaving the calves with their mums until they're weaned, then they graze in the paddock next door if they are, until they're completely separated. It is wonderful. Just a thoughtful guy who's devoted years and years of his life to invest in a really cool company. Maybe someone might like to interview him. He knows how environmentally friendly and nutritious New Zealand milk is. The interview below is fantastic. His name is Glenn Harrod. I think he's fascinating from Carolyn. I'll look that up. Thank you. Hi, Rodney. You seem to be a man who likes to think outside the box. This morning you had the water lady and the Western A Price lady. Do you think... You could find an expert on raw food as in only eating uncooked, not heated above 50 degrees Celsius. Celsius. Many thanks, Rodney Chantel. I'm going to do that. I did eat raw food as an experiment just for a couple of days. And, oh, I found it like mentally quite tough, but it was quite enjoyable. I'd eaten, I'm not a fish fan. I always gag at fish, but I found I could eat raw tuna. And so I did that. And then I tried raw beef, and then I tried raw chicken. Didn't get sick, didn't die. Um, And I didn't eat much because the cooking gives it a lot of flavor. I didn't stick at it. I just tried it because, um, I don't know, cooking food and eating food is such a special thing. And cooking does... Enhance the food. And we have had fire for a long, long time. So I figured that it'd be okay for humans. But it's interesting, and I remember hearing a podcast years and years ago about a guy who just ate nothing but raw meat. And he'd been very sick. And it occurred to him. I'll try and find someone. Great work. You're on Rally Check Radio. Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please send me a text, 2057. Email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. I love getting your messages so much. I always feel a bit sad when it comes to the end of the show. Ah, It's just so lovely. Uh, You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We had Carolyn Eichler. We were talking, uh, prepping. My goodness. Her and her friend would be the people to be near uh, or be around because you sort of feel that they could look after us as well as themselves. Because sure, how I'd go? I'd like to think I've got a resilient mind, but there'd be technical gaps in my knowledge, like catching fish and eating them, uh, catching little game and eating them. Like that would be a technical. Gap in my experience, and of course, we had Professor Wally Richards on gardening what to do uh, with the dry conditions. Loved the idea of the dishwashing liquid uh, to get into the soil, amazing! And wasn't it interesting that he's got this network right through New Zealand about what's happening in gardening? And again, the insects or the lack thereof came up. What are you finding in your place? Lots of insects. Hmm. let us know text me 2057 email me inbox at rallycheck.radio and of course we had Tani Webster talking about cabinet MPs inside outside cabinet associate ministers boy I had to scratch my head and remember how that worked Um, again thank you for listening talk next week Tuesday looking forward to it already thank you for listening and blessings to everyone wherever you are May your day and your weekend be truly blessed. Thank you for being part of our community.
0: You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on
2: RCR Reality Check Radio.